The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! oh my god, this is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip Podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good, how you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man, what's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid up, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. And I go, wait a minute. You weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of wrestling. Time once again for my favorite segment here on WCW Worldwide. Note to the producers, let this one run long if it has to. It's AskWCW.com. You know the drill. Send your email to AskWCW at WCW.com, and we will ask your question of a WCW superstar. This week, the question from Bob in Zephyrils, Florida, has a question for Lash LaRue, formerly of the Misfits in Action. His question for Lash, who is your favorite opponent? And what was your favorite match? Lash LaRue with his answer. Bob, thank you very much for that question, brother. Uh, I have to say my favorite opponent to ever wrestle would have to be Chavo Guerrero Jr. It's kind of funny saying that now that we're teammates, but uh, we've even had matches together since we've been a team and since we've been involved in the MIA. Lieutenant Loco and myself, when we get in the ring, uh, we have a lot of fun, man, because we can go around and round technical-wise, match each other holds for holds, makes it very competitive and very interesting match. Uh, but as far as the best match or most exciting match I was ever involved in, believe it or not, I myself, Corporal Cajun, was not wrestling. Uh, we were at a house show, which is a non-televised show, in Amarillo, Texas. And Terry Funk was wrestling one of his last matches against Lance Storm for the United States title. Right there in his hometown, Terry Funk won the match. We run out as a group MIA and hold him above our shoulders, and you would not believe the electricity of the cr crowd there in Amarillo. It was unbelievable. Had to be the best experience I've ever had. Bob, there's your answer, and what a memorable night that was for Lash LaRue, Terry Funk, and Lance Storm. And I tell you what, 
Since we used your question, we will send you... Wait, wait, wait. I've got a question for Lash LaRue, Corporal Cajun. And that question is, how is life in WCW going to be without all the backup, without all the strength and numbers that uh, the misfits in action afforded you? I think it's going to be an uphill struggle for Mr. Lash LaRue, a.k.a. Corporal Cajun. That's a good question. Here's Lash with his answer. Good. Wait, we don't have time for that. Sure we do. No, we don't. We've got to have plenty of time left for the professor's pick. Come on, get with it. This WCW Worldwide T-shirt coming your way, Bob. If we use your question, send us your name, address, and shirt size. This is an extra large. Tanae, it might fit well, over your on, head. Come on, they know that. Yeah, suitable for framing. We understand all that. Let's get on with this. Plenty of time for the pick of the week. The pick of the week is coming up next. Maybe. Stay with us. Maybe. Maybe. You're wasting maybe. time with all this maybe. gaga. Nothing about it. It's in my contract. Have you been running in this? You walk in the yard? And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. us on the line right now is a former WCW superstar. He's a former WCW World Tag Team Champion. You may know him as Corporal Cajun from the Misfits in Action, but he is, of course, Lash LaRue. Lash, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, Paz. Man, somebody had to be, and I drew the short straw. You got the raging Cajun, Lash LaRue. This is awesome to get you on. You're a very rare podcast guest. What are you up to lately? Besides drawing great caricatures, be a great artist, making great drawings, and I will put this out there, but you had an awesome drawing for me. So what, what else have you been up to? Man, that's it, brother. I'm in ministry now, and I'm associate pastor at a Baptist church here in Alabama where I live, man, and I just lay low and stay off of the grid. You know, I'm a little bit of the hide-and-seek champion of the world right now i'm like bigfoot i just lay low and i keep my head down man i enjoy being sort of the internet social media ghost that i am and uh i roll with it man i wear it well 
Yeah, I saw you obviously, you know, with Dr. Tom, who's a good buddy of mine. We do the uh, the podcast, take you to school together. And I was like, wait a second, wait a second. You're hanging out with Lash LaRue. Like, yeah, we're going to visit um, Brad Armstrong's gravesite. So I was like, wow, first of all, I didn't know that he, that he did that. He visited the site with you. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize, you know, you and Lash were tight. So that's pretty damn cool. Yeah, absolutely. I actually knew Dr. Tom through Brad before I ever met, uh, you know, Tom Pritchard face-to-face for the first time. And Brad and I were running buddies in WCW. Um, I admired him greatly growing up. I admired the entire Armstrong family, man. And being an Alabama boy, there was a lot of that Continental Championship wrestling, which was an Armstrong Fuller stronghold. And, man, if you grew up in Alabama or in the Southeast, for that matter, during the 80s, man, Bullet Bob Armstrong and the Armstrongs, that was as big as Hulk Hogan to us, man, when I was kids. And uh, when I met Brad and Brad, anybody that knew Brad Armstrong knew what a gentleman and first-class person he was, brother, and was such a great guy that, in fact, Dr. Tom and I have had this conversation several times. I will never claim to be Brad's best friend because Brad had so many people that loved him, but Brad was certainly my best friend in the wrestling business and out of the wrestling business and uh, meant the world to me. And, And so Tom and I both shared that affinity for Brad, which, kind of made us brothers in arms already just mutually speaking um, because of that shared relationship. And it was a natural connection, man. And and to be honest with you, there's a certain group of guys in the wrestling business that are the Brad Armstrong types, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I will say is the Dr. Tom Pritchard types. And you kind of know that you're going to hit it off with those people and you're going to draw yourself close to them before you ever even meet them because you can tell what kind of person they are. All the Armstrongs are like that, man. There's so many guys like that in the wrestling business. And I was blessed to to know him and to be able to have him a part of my life. And, uh, you know, I'm blessed to know Dr. Tom and have him to be a part of my life. And that's a yearly pilgrimage for us. We go over there, spend a little time with Brad and Really, the only time you ever see me on social media probably is that yearly trip, and it's already always commemorated with a little picture there by Dr. Tom, and he'll have a tendency to post it, man, and uh, people go, there's that rare Bigfoot photo of Lash LaRue. (laughs) Yes, yes. I was like, oh, my God, there's Lash. I can't believe it. He's actually out there. Because you're right, you don't do any social media or anything like that. But that is interesting, though, the relationship with Brad. I mean, you were saying – he was your best friend. Yeah, he probably had maybe had a few best friends. Dr. Tom's one of them. But when did that relationship start? Basically, when you got to WCW is when you met him and then became buddies, running buddies with him? That's exactly right. Very quickly in WCW, as a matter of fact, because uh, this is actually a funny story. When I started with WCW, at that time, um, I went straight to the power plant. And uh, it was I was not yet signed by WCW. When they did sign me, I would be the youngest guy they had in a contract at the time. But when I first tried out and started in WCW, I was trained at the power plant. And back then, a lot of the wrestlers could come into the power plant once a week and, or once every two weeks and pick up their paycheck there. And Brad popped in one day just to pick up his paycheck. And I had not been there, man, maybe a month at that point training. And that was my first little step into the wrestling business at all. And I'm like, man, there's Brad Armstrong. And I – him being the cool guy that he was and the just genuinely nice guy to everybody he met that he was, he immediately started talking to me. We immediately got along and hit it off. And it wasn't long after that I started doing some uh, some bookings and having some shows with WCW. And the first time I was on the road was actually 
I flew into a town, and I was never that guy that was great at going. I remember this date, that town, or whatever. But it was wherever it was. We fly in. I get to the airport. You know, I'm trying to be professional. I'm trying to be the young kid that's now a wrestler and traveling and, and um, you know, acting as if I belong. And I fly into the town, get there, go to rent a car, and realize, didn't know this before, I was too young to even rent a car. I was <laughs> under 25, and they went and rent a car to me. So um, Armstrong and Steve Armstrong happened to be on that flight, and they were laughing at me so hard, and they said, come on, last you can ride with us. And that was my intro to the Armstrong clan and family, and we just hit it off from there. They let me travel with them, man. They let me be the young kid that didn't have a clue what was going on and just drag, drag around with them, and they were great to me. They were so wonderful to me. So how did you actually get to the power plant? I mean, you just saw it and said, I want to become a wrestler. Like, how do you actually get in and get through the door and start training there? <laughs> it was on a whim, man. It's, it's almost exactly what you had said, although that kind of simplifies it. Um, to give you a fair assessment of the entire story, this is sort of how it goes. I grew up dirt poor, man, here in Alabama, where I'm from. In my junior and senior year of high school, I was uh, homeless. I slept, believe it or not, and it sounds like I'm making up the storyline to a movie, but this is actually the truth. I slept behind the cash register in a clothing store. They let me be, quote, unquote, security at night, and they paid me during that time. And I would sleep back there. Man, I wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. At 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, I would go down to the high school where I played football so I could take a shower in the athletic department. I'd go to school all day. I'd have football practice after school. I'd go home with a buddy that I played football with. I'd eat dinner with his family, do whatever homework I have, take a shower, go back up to the clothing store and lock myself in at midnight and sleep on the floor there until I did it again the next day. And that was kind of my junior and senior year of high school. And when I started college, I had a little bit more downtime than I'd had before. And I worked so much during high school and played sports during high school that I had fallen away from being a wrestling fan. I was a wrestling fan when I was a kid. And then I was just overwhelmed by life throughout high school that in the 90s, I didn't follow wrestling quite so much in the early 90s. Well, this was about 90. I graduated in 95, so we're talking 96, 97. And I had a little downtime again, could flip over on Monday night, and there's WCW Monday Nitro. And that immediately grabbed my attention because most of the guys that I grew up watching were now in WCW. You know, Macho Man, Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, Sting, Ric Flair, Lex Luger, all these guys. And so it grabbed my attention. I started watching it, became a fan again very quickly. And WCW was blowing up, and they had the power plant out of Atlanta, and they had open tryouts. I don't know if you remember or not, but they used to run the promo, the commercial for mm-hmm. open tryouts at the power plant. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, you know, I said to myself, I said, look, I'm, there's no way I'm going to ever make it, but I'd probably go over there. Maybe I even get to – I was naive enough to think maybe I'll meet one of the wrestlers, get to shake somebody's hand. i got a great story to tell my buddies, come back home. It's just an experience. I want to experience the tryout. And I had wrestled in high school, played football in high school. I was a decent athlete, but I was never like the guy that was going to get a scholarship to college. I was never just this overwhelming athlete. But, man, I had a heart, and I would work hard, and nobody was going to outwork me. And when I went to that open tryout, there was 24 guys in the tryout class. And there were guys that were 6'4", 290 with abs. You know, they were former bodybuilders. There's guys that 
made it into college football but didn't quite make it to the NFL. There's other pro athletes. And, man, I'm just a young little runt in there. But I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to make it. They're going to choose somebody. They're going to choose this guy over here that's got a mohawk and tattoos and looks like a wrestler. But as soon as you walk in, they say, grab a bucket. And they had these five-gallon buckets in the corner. You grab a bucket, you turn it upside down, you start doing those Hindu squats. And, man, you do those until you're about to puke. Then you hit your stomach, you do push-ups, then you do sit-ups, then you run in place, and then you do it all over again. And that three-day tryout, man, the first two and a half days of it was just that. It was calisthenics. And all these guys would cramp up. They would fall out. They wouldn't be able to do it. And if you couldn't go any longer, when it came to that point, they say, look, you called us. We didn't call you. You can leave. You can go home. And those were the notorious stories came from of people not being able to make it through the tryouts. And uh, you can people can laugh about it now and think that, you know, treat WCW or that time like it was a little bit of a joke because we're the company that didn't make it and got bought out and everything else. But, man, the WCW power plant at the time was – every bit of brute as brutal as those stories that you hear. And, uh, man, I'd see these guys falling out, and I re- suddenly realized I'm the guy with the advantage. You know, I'm not the guy at the disadvantage anymore because if this is about heart, nobody's going to outwork me. Nobody's going to have a bigger heart than me. And at the end of the three-day trial, me and one other guy were the only two guys that had not gone home. And even then, they bring you into the office, you sat down with Jody Hamilton, the original assassin, great legendary guy, and they just tell you straight up to your face, we're not promising you'll ever have a job. We're not telling you you're going to be a WCW wrestler. We're not saying you'll be on TV. We're not promising you'll be the next big star. The only thing we're telling you is you can pay us three grand and we'll train you to be a wrestler. And, man, my mentality was, if I think that I have any kind of an aptitude and any kind of a chance at this, this is the Harvard of professional wrestling. This is the biggest company in the world right now as far as professional wrestling goes. Then I'm, I'm going to have as good of a chance here as I am anywhere. And I was always one of those kind of guys that if I just aim for the stars, even if I fall a little short, I'm going to be so much further along than I was before. So I had maybe 1500 bucks saved up, and I gave that to them. And the rest of it I would work off by moving furniture at CNN or anything else that Turner would allow me to do. And I drove from Alabama to Atlanta five days a week, you know, eight and ten hours a day for 10, 12 months before I ever even got a shot doing any of the TV tapings or anything else. And once I got an opportunity, I made the most of it and just kind of earned my way that way. Power plant is so tough. It's almost like they don't want you to make it. You know what I mean? And, and we saw the documentary. And we, we, you know, as a fan, you always see all the stuff with the power plants. Like, man, it's like military training, and they really, really do tough things to you guys. And you're right. It's like if you have the most heart, that's the person that's going to last. And obviously, you were the one that lasted, uh, along with one other guy. Do you even remember who the other guy was? No, I don't, because I never saw him again after that. You know, and when they oh, met wow. with you after the tryout, they met with you individually. And uh, like I said, the first day, man, at the end of the first day, out of 24 guys, there were maybe 16 left. The next day out of that 16, like eight showed up. At the end of that day, there were six of us left. And the next day, me and that one other guy showed up. And I don't know if they gave him the opportunity and he just passed on it or what. Um, but I never saw him again after that. And, uh, you know, then other guys would come through. And they would do that, man, every month. That was almost a monthly thing with those tryouts. 
And, you know, there's two schools of thoughts on that, Paz, to be honest with you, man. And I, I'm not saying I think one is right and one is wrong. The two school of thoughts are the first school of thought is, look, this is a work. And there's no reason to be pushing guys through all of that kind of calisthenics and toughness. And this is not the Marines, and they're not going to have to go out and die for their country. So why are you doing that? Just assess them as an athlete. Decide whether or not you think they're star material and you can make money off of them and whether or not they're going to be a great wrestler and just do business. That's the one school of thought. The other school of thought, which I probably am a little more partial to just because of the way that I was sort of raised up in the business, for lack of a better way of putting it. And that school of thought was you have to treat this business like it's real because to us it is real. And the only way that the fans are going to believe it is if you treat it like it's real. And even then, it wasn't as open as far as people breaking kayfabe and that sort of thing. And so the mentality was, okay, if we put you out there on Monday Nitro Live and you twist an ankle or break a leg, are you just going to stop? You know, are you going to end the match at that point? Because if wrestling is real and you break your arm in a wrestling match, okay, you broke your arm in the wrestling match. The guy was trying to beat you anyway, so why would he not take advantage of it? You know, that's sort of the psychology behind it. And the mentality is that we don't want people that are going to quit in the middle of a match, or we don't want people that's going to push through, that, that won't push through. We want people that we can put out there and they're going to work hard in every match, and they're never going to give less than 120%. And I can respect that and understand that as well. It's a tough business. It's mentally tough. It's physically tough. It's psychologically tough. When you're on the road 300 days out of the year, and you're on the road more than you're at home with your family, man, you better be tough. And so I think in that, from that standpoint, it's good to gauge that toughness and find out where those guys stand then as opposed to, We've invested all this time and effort into them only to find out that they're going to burn out when you put them on the road. So who's training you down there in the power plant? Dwayne Bruce, Pez Watley, Jody Hamilton, is that kind of the crew? You are absolutely right on, man. You know your stuff. And you would throw in that, too, a gentleman by the name of Mike Winter that was a great guy as well. How were they? I thought they were phenomenal, man. They were tremendous. They were a little um, old school which I'm not saying was a bad thing at all. Uh, later on, before WCW would, would sort of be bought out and transition, uh, they had built, WCW built a larger headquarters there in Atlanta that was separate from where the old power plant was, and they wound up in those new offices, including the power plant in that. And they did a reassessment at that point, and they brought in more guys that was more of a mixture of just old-school good wrestling with new-school more character development and that sort of thing and, and taking a newer approach to it. That was after I was already out of the power plant. So when I was there at the power plant, it was exactly the crew you were talking about, and they were just good old-school guys that were going to teach you how to work. They were going to teach you the fundamentals of being a good worker. And as far as adding anything to that from a pizzazz standpoint, that was going to be all up to you, man. They were just going to teach you strong, good fundamentals and some great ring psychology. And that was what they felt like was their job, and they're absolutely right from that standpoint. So, did you think that? I know we're saying that there's two school of thought, but do you think that it's almost like pushing guys away or from the business? You know what I mean? Like, let's say you get the star football player, he's like, "Oh man, you know, I, I could be money, I could be this," but they're kind of doing this military style training. Eh, maybe I'll just go to WWF or something. You know, like, do you think that it may have pushed some guys away? I think it's possible that it pushed some guys away, but at the same time, too, 
I really do think that it was a combination of they wanted to prepare guys mentally and psychologically for what they knew the business was. Again, old school guys had a different way of looking at it. They didn't look at the cameras and the lights and the Monday nights as much as the night after night of being on the road and driving to the next town. And you just got through wrestling, and it's late, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Can you still get in the car and make it to the next town that's 350 miles down the road? You know, that's hard psychologically, and I think it was a little bit of that. And I do think it's a little bit of also those old school guys, their mentality was, I love this business. I have a passion for this business. I have given my life to this business. I have sweated for it. I have bled for it. I've cried over it. I've had great heartaches. I've had wonderful triumphs. And this is not something I'm just going to hand to this next kid that came in here because he has stars in his eyes. If he's going to get this, it's going to be because he earned it. And, hey, I can't fault that. I can't fault that logic of thinking. it meant a lot to those guys that built the business into what it is, that they're just not going to hand it off to the next guy that looks the part. They're going to make sure you deserve it and you earned it and you worked for it. And if you respected that, though, if your mentality was you came in and you go, hey, I get it, and I'm going to have a humble demeanor about me, and I'm just here to learn, and I'm just glad that I get to be on the team and wear a jersey, if that was your mentality, man, they were going to do anything and everything they could in the world to help you succeed. Yeah, part of me does love that. I just hope it, you know, wouldn't push anybody away, but a part of me loves that because it's like this guy really, really wants it. He's really going to go after it. You know, let's make sure that he has all the basics and the fundamentals down, but he's going to really have to show that he wants this, which is really old school train of thought, which is great in certain aspects. I think it is, man, and and I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a romantic at heart, and as far as romanticizing the business, I don't think that you can do better and to look at it from the perspective of putting in the work, the grind, day in and day out. In fact, it talks a little bit more to that affinity that I had for the Armstrong types and the Arn Anderson types and the Ric Flair types and those old school guys that put food on their table doing this business through the good years, the bad years, through decades after decades. I would look at them and i say, oh, man, I want to be like that guy more than I want to be like the guy that may be hot for about three or four or five years and then you don't see him again. Of course, I understand the irony behind me saying that when I had maybe a good five- or six-year run and then nobody saw me again. But with that being said, uh, I still had a greater affinity for the guys that really put in the years and the decades and gave their lives to the business. Was there any other WCW guys that were on TV that were down there training with you? Like, would would Mike Sanders – I'm just trying to think of, like, that time frame. No, maybe Mike Sanders would probably be after you. But I'm just trying to think of who else maybe that we would know that was in that uh, power plane with you at the same time. Yeah, you know, once again, uh, John, you have just impressed me with your uh, mental acuity when it comes to knowing that history of WCW because – Honestly, Mike Sanders was probably the first friend that I made really close in the wrestling business and there at the power plant because I literally made it through the power plant, I think I want to say November, and I think that was 97, and Mike, I believe, came in December of 97, maybe about a month later. And he and I uh, were really, really close friends right there at the beginning. Not long after that came Mark Genderak. Uh, Sean O'Hare was a little bit after that. Uh, Alan Funk, who would have been Kiwi in WCW, uh, he came through there about the same time. Kid Romeo had been there. Uh, Johnny Swinger, not really so much through the power plant, 
but was already somebody that was training there at the power plant and uh, was was getting books on with WCW, even though he'd been in the business for a while. And then there were some guys like that, as a matter of fact, that were WCW guys for the most part already, but they were spending a lot of time training at the power plant and trying to get better and better and better. And in that group, I would say you had Disco, who I met very quickly early on, Glenn. He was uh, training at the power plant on a pretty regular basis, even though he was already under contract. Uh, Chris Canyon, uh, Billy Kidman, you would see those guys down there a lot. Uh, DDP would come down there a lot. Paige was, was the guy that would come in there and train a pretty good bit. Brian Clark would come down there and train a great great deal, and I got to know him very well. High Voltage, Kenny Chaos, Robbie Rage, those guys were in there all the time. Quite a great crew. I, I love all those guys. I'm just a, I was a big WCW fan, so just interested like in a time frame of who's it coming in, who's coming out. So when you get done with the power plant and you get quote unquote signed, who is the one that signs you? Is it like a Bischoff? Does he come in and sign you? Is it a Terry Taylor? Is it a JJ Dillon? Like how do you get signed? Well, that's ironic too. I mean, that's funny because my story again was kind of different from everybody else's. And I had been at the WCW power plant at that point, maybe about, I want to say 10 or 11 months, something like that. Maybe not quite that long, maybe a little less than that, uh, right around 10 months. EA Sports signed a contract with WCW to start doing video games for them. And uh, as part of their plan for doing these video games, the very first one that they did with WCW, they decided they were going to film it with this new technology that was motion cap, uh, like you were seeing in the movies at the time, where they put the suit on you with the little sensors and everything else, and they'd come in there, and uh, they would have cameras set up everywhere in their studio, and they could film you from all different angles, and then they created sort of this uh, generic skeleton for every single move and every single movement, and then they could wrap the different graphics of the different wrestles around that skeleton three-dimensionally, and then that's how they could create the video video game. Well, EA Sports, as part of that planning, came down to the power plant just to film some wrestlers in the ring uh, training and working out to get an idea of how this may or may not work, just to take some footage back to Vancouver with them and take a look at it. And when they were down there, that was during the time that I was there every single day, grinding it in and grinding it out. And I was one of those kind of guys. I was very strange in the sense that, you know, I was almost smallish size, but I wasn't super small. Like if you watch some of my matches with uh, with cruiserweights, I'm probably a bigger cruiserweight, but I'm obviously not a full full blown heavyweight. I was kind of a middle middle of the road kind of guy there from the size standpoint. I had done some amateur wrestling, so I knew all these wrestling holds and good chain wrestling fundamentals. I had those basics down, and I could scientifically go in there and have a good technical match. Uh, I could have an amateur-style match. So I could do all the wrestling holds and wrestling moves. I could do – I was big enough and strong enough to still do a lot of power moves. There weren't too many power moves I couldn't do. And I was learning this cruiserweight style, and I was one of the few American guys that was doing that Lucha Libre cruiserweight style with a lot of high-flying uh, flips and things like the Hurricane Runners off the top rope and that sort of thing, springboards. And uh, when EA Sports saw that, what they saw in me was, man, here's a kid that we can get that can do every single move that we could possibly want in our video game. We need him. 
And so they went to WCW after seeing him in the ring and filming me, and they go, look, we'd like him to come and work on the video game for us. And WCW goes, Should you, wouldn't you prefer to maybe pick someone that's already under contract? He's not under contract. Then we can send one of our guys up there, and it won't cost you anything. They can just come up and work on the video game. They're like, look, even if we have to pay him his daily rate, we'll pay him just to have him. We're that impressed with what he can do. So they sent me up there to Vancouver to work on the video game for EA Sports, and it was me, Sarge, who was the, one of the trainers there at the power plant, to work together up there. They sent Bobby Eaton up there, and they sent, uh, they sent uh, Ted DiBiase as a consultant just to be like the brains behind all of it to help them figure out the best way to go about putting together a video game. So he was mostly a consultant more than anything else, kind of helping them decide what should be in it and what shouldn't be in it. And I hit it off with all those guys right away. And We spent a lot of time together up there in Vancouver working on the video game. We would go up there for 16 days straight and then come back home or go up for 20 days straight and then come back home. And that was the first time I had met Ted. And by that time, Ted DiBiase was already in ministry as well, kind of semi-retired but not really and still under contract with WCW but not on the road all the time. And so I admired Ted greatly because my faith is very important to me as well. And I asked him one day, I'd kind of hit a brick wall in my training at the power plant. I was getting to that point of frustration a little bit, not because I was impatient. I was just wondering what's next and what do I have to do to get WCW's attention at this point? And what's the next step to try to actually have a job in the wrestling business as opposed to training to be a wrestler? And I asked Ted if I'd come up to his room and talk to him after we finished shooting one day. And he, of course, was very gracious about it and said, certainly. And I went up and talked to him, kind of laid out my frustrations. I said, you know, I said, uh, Ted, I'm, um, I'm a little frustrated, man. I, I've, been, I've been training. I've been working hard. I've been going back and forth for over 10 months straight now driving. Two hours there, two hours back home every single day, putting in eight and 10-hour days in the ring. And uh, – I don't know what else I have to do to get WCW's attention. I don't feel like I could be more prepared than I am physically. I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, I don't feel like I could be more prepared than I am mentally. There's not a hold I don't know. There's nothing about the psychology of professional wrestling and storytelling in the ring that I can't do. I don't see how I can get any better with that. I said I feel like I'm prepared mentally. I'm prepared physically. I don't know what else I can do to change things. And he said, well, that stuff may be true. I see you. You certainly are prepared physically. You are certainly prepared mentally. But are you prepared spiritually? Because this is a difficult business, and you're going to find yourself on the road more than you're at home, and you need to make sure that you're prepared for that sort of spiritually with your faith. And I said, man, that's a, you're, you're right. I get that. And I had kind of not thought about that. And I prayed really hard on it. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not somebody as important as my faith is to me, I'm not somebody that just wears it on my sleeve and, and tries to wave it around like a flag or a banner. And I'm certainly not one of these name it and claim it types like some evangelists you might see on TV that says, you know, if you just ask for it, then boom, it's yours like you're rubbing a, a golden lamp and a genie comes out. But I do know this, that I prayed on that to try to prepare myself spiritually for it. And I had had a meeting with WCW and shared some of my frustrations with them, maybe two weeks earlier or something, but nothing else was really said about it. But I went, I went on the road uh, that following week, and I was just traveling and getting paid per night 
uh, for TV tapings and things like that. And I got a call from home saying that WCW, you know, had just sent me a contract out of the blue, sent me a FedEx in the mail that had a contract in it. I looked at the contract and it was no brainer to me to sign it. Obviously I'm just starting out in the wrestling business and WCW has offered me a contract. Of course I'm going to sign it. So I signed it. I get my lawyer to kind of look over it, just glance it to make sure I'm not missing anything. Send it right back to him and start continuing on the road. Only now I'm getting a, a steady paycheck and I know what I'm getting paid every week, as opposed to wondering if I'm going to get booked on the next show. And nothing formal was really said about it. That was a strange thing about the wrestling business and maybe kind of a, a misnomer for most people. It's not this big fanfare uh, celebration where you walk in and you have this great sit-down negotiation with them. And maybe that is that way for some guys. I don't know. But my experience was not that. It wasn't you're invited to the office and we're going to lay out some plans and, hey, if you can do this, we can do this for you and we can do business. No, it was WCW sent me a contract. I sent it, I signed it and sent it back to them. And then I was on the road and uh, kind of doing what I was doing before, just at a faster pace and, and more efficiently and effectively and being booked more often. That was all. Who do you report to? Is there somebody that you kind of report to as far as like, is JJ Dillon the head of talent relations? Is like, what is the, uh, the structure, if you will, behind the scenes? Well, you know, really, there was no structure outside of the fact that unless there was a problem, I mean, if there was a problem with something, they're going to give you a call. But outside of there being a problem, you kind of knew what to expect. You knew that they're going to send you a FedEx that has a booking sheet in it, and it was going to have some airline tickets in it. And that booking sheet was just going to have basically the schedule, the calendar of when the next show is and whether or not you're booked on it. And if you're booked on it, here's the address, and here's a plane ticket. And then it's your job to get there from there, you know. Um, and and they expect you to kind of have your stuff together well enough that you can pull that off. Uh, again, unless they've got some specific ideas, some specific stories, or there's some kind of an issue, you really don't talk to them that often. The most often I would talk to the office was actually if I was talking to talent um, liaisons and agents because of a personal appearance. Now, personal appearance would be something out of the ordinary, and it's not going to be on the booking sheet. So then the office may call me, ask me if I can make that personal appearance, and would I mind doing it? Of course, I would do anything they ask me to do, and then we kind of plan that separately, and you go on and do that. You know, Outside of that, the only other time that I ever had anything remotely close to them sitting down and telling me some plans are – something that may have been the genesis for what would become my wrestling career was not long after I had gone up to Vancouver and worked for EA Sports the very first time, and they had kind of heard back that, hey, this guy can go in the ring, and, and he's got some good, uh, you know, he, he's, he's got some good moves and some good abilities and, and puts on a good match, is they, uh, they called me at the power plant on a Friday. The office did, and I want to say it was J.J. Dillon, and uh, he, he called me and, and said they were going to book me on Monday Nitro the following week. This was like on a Friday. Can you be at Monday Nitro on Monday night? We want you to wrestle Kidman. And this was when they first put the strap on Kidman as the Cruiserweight champion. And they just were feeding him other Cruiserweights to have good matches with, good solid you know, uh, competitive matches with that would make him look like a strong champion, get another good win under his belt, and move on. And that was kind of my Monday Nitro debut. Now, that I will remember was in Minneapolis. And I want to say it was uh, 98, maybe, early 98, February, something like that. 
and uh, flew up there on Monday, went, had a great match with Billy Kidman. By that point, I'd had some Saturday nights under my belt, you know, and I had kind of earned a reputation with other guys as being a solid worker and somebody they could depend on in the ring. And Billy gave me a great match. We went out there and had a great match. And I think that that really sort of set the stage for them seeing that I was somebody that could bring some talent to the table. Now, were you Mark LaRue at this point or were you Lash yet? I was Lash LaRue at that point. What was funny about that is uh, here's the genesis of Lash LaRue for you. This is exactly the truth, 100%, unvarnished. I was green in the business, never been around the business, was certainly not familiar with the vernacular and the jargon and everything else that goes along with it. And when they first booked me out on TV taping, I think the first time I ever – well, I shouldn't even say booked me out. Let me rephrase that. Time out. Um, Because it wasn't that formal. I was at the power plant. It would kind of become common knowledge once they thought that you were good enough that you could have matches. They would give you a heads up and they'd say, look, the Saturday night TV tapings that they do in Orlando in the studios down there, uh, you could take your gear and go down there and just check in with the bookers and the agents and let them know that you're there and you've got your gear. And if they need anybody to work, you're available and you're ready. And You just sit around waiting, hoping you get some kind of a shot or an opportunity. And so, I did that, and the first trip I took down there to uh, to Orlando, by that time, I had been informally at the power plant by Jody Hamilton calling me Lash LaRue. From day one, Jody Hamilton always called me Lash LaRue, because if you hear that last name, LaRue, which is my shoot last name, you can't hear that name without thinking Lash LaRue, the old cowboy, uh, only my name is spelled a little different. And Jody Hamilton would always call me Lash LaRue, and, but I went down there, introduced myself to Terry Taylor was one of the first agents that I came in contact with. And he was one of the head bookers at the time. And he was on the Saturday night show and I walked up to him and I don't know how well, you know, Terry, but he's kind of known for being sarcastic and having that kind of abrasive, uh, you know, a little bit of personality about him. And he doesn't mean anything by it. That's just the way that he cuts up and that's just his personality. And I didn't think it personally, but I walked up to him, introduced myself to him. And I said, uh, hi, Mr. Taylor. I just want to introduce myself to you. My name is Mark. And he goes, I'm sure you are, kid, and just walked off. (laughs) (laughs) And I immediately thought to myself, okay, that's not going to work in this business, right? That name Mark is probably not going to go very well. Right. I I thought that's not going to get over. So uh, I went up to him not long after that. I said, hey, do you mind if I wrestle as Lash LaRue? He goes, I don't care what you wrestle as. And I took that as a green light. So then I took the initiative of going to the production truck myself. I just knocked on the production truck. I said, uh, hey, I, I spoke to the bookers, and they said I could wrestle as Lash LaRue. If you don't mind, when I go out, I'll just put my name Lash LaRue underneath there. That was literally as formal as I went. And I kind of found that everything that I got in, in the business early on, I just got from doing small things like that. You know, suddenly by going to a production truck and knocking on the door and telling them my name is Lash LaRue, I'm Lash LaRue instead of Mark LaRue. Um, when I got back to Atlanta and spoke to Jody about it and talked to Mr. Hamilton and told him, you know, told him the story and told him some fun, you know, fun about that. He goes, uh, he goes, you know, he goes, take some advice from me, kid. He goes, you know, look, if I were you, I wouldn't worry about copyrights. I wouldn't worry about trademarks. I wouldn't worry about any of that stuff. I would go and legally change my name or add to my name Lash. I wouldn't change it. I'd keep my name. I'd just add that to it because your name's already LaRue. So I literally went to their local probate office like 
a woman that just got married and is changing her last name and just petitioned to change my name to Jonathan Mark Lash LaRue legally. And I was like 18 or 19 years old. And uh, they certainly didn't have any problem with it. Paid the $25 fee, made my name legally Jonathan Mark Lash LaRue. And before I ever signed my first contract in WCW, my name was Lash LaRue. And from then on, it was never an issue in WCW. WCW didn't care one way or the other. When I signed with WWE after they bought the company, uh, my very first contract that I received from them, uh, they had put in there that they owned the rights to Lash LaRue and that that they owned that character and that they owned all that, like they do with so many of those things. That's pretty standard for them. And I called up the legal department there, and I said, look, the only issue I have with any of this is uh, Lash LaRue is my actual name. And I sent them my, my driver's license, and by that point, that had been my name for about six years. And they looked at that, and they go, oh, okay, we didn't, we didn't realize that. We thought WCW came up with the character, and if they did, we owned everything that they owned. And so, here. And they changed that, and I never had an issue with it. So that's sort of how I became... Lash LaRue. That is great. I guess they have to license it from you, right? Because it's really your name? Is that how yeah, it works? I think that licensing is kind of implied in the contract when, because written into those contracts, unless you have something that's far more sophisticated and sort of some kind of a side deal that's structured differently, in a standard contract, that licensing is going to be implied in your working contract with them. So Basically, you know, you're lashed to Rulu now. You're going to be signed. You're going to use your real, you know, you got a Cajun accent. So it almost sounds like a Dustyism, like Lash LaRue, the Cajun, but it's not. Like, that's one of the things I always thought it was a Dustyism. No, no, what, but here's, here's, some, here's some of the uh, thinking on that and some of the impression that I got from that, actually. And, and you can, I guess, even though um, it's not like I was groomed by Dusty or anything like that, but where you can see some of the fingerprints and the DNA on that, and I think Dusty could appreciate at the time, was, again, like I told you, I was 18 years old. I grew up in Alabama. Um, my dad, who I never knew, was, was Cajun, but I, I never knew him. You know, um, That's where I pick up the Lafayette, Louisiana stuff and everything else from. But really the genesis of Lash LaRue was because the, the whole Cajun accent thing, when I first started WCW and we would practice a few promos they stick a microphone in front of my face and being from alabama man i had this southern accent that was the way i speak now is light years different from where i was then man straight out of high school man i was as country as day as long you put a microphone from my face man i'm gonna talk like this and i just that's all i knew and that's the best i could do and they would literally say to me look you can't you can't speak like that on television you know southern is considered ignorant on tv and you've got to drop that southern accent and i kept practicing i go how in the world am i going to drop my southern accent i mean that's just me it's way too ingrained and i tried and i tried and i tried no matter how hard i tried I couldn't drop that southern accent. And then it hit me one day that my last name is LaRue. Man, that's as Cajun as the day is long. And I grew up watching this great storyteller on local public television here in Alabama named Justin Wilson that was a Cajun cook. And this great storyteller while he's cooking, and man, he would go, mm mm, mm this is going to be the best thing you ever put in your mouth. I guarantee 
And what was the first real kind of storyline where they really are doing something with you? Was it the feud with Disco Inferno? Yeah, yeah, it was the feud with Disco Inferno, and then it was uh, that which evolved then into me tagging with Disco against the Mamelukes, you know. And really, to be honest with you, outside of uh, those two things, that's probably the only thing that they really did with me until we started doing the Misfits in Action gimmick. So what do you think about Disco? So many people have so many opinions and varying opinions, but I feel like these smart fans know he was a great worker. He knew how to get heat. He knew how to be a smart heel. He knew his role. He knew his character. And even when he's doing his podcast stuff today, he still knows what he's doing to garner attention and garner heat. So what do you think about Glenn, a.k.a. the Disco Inferno? I think Disco is a phenomenal wrestling mind, and I think he's perfect for the wrestling business. And Disco always considered a great friend and a great guy. And I think we have this problem, and especially back then we had this tendency to conflate two things. You conflate a great wrestler with a great worker. There's been a lot of great wrestlers that were not great workers. And what I mean by that is, man, they could have a technical match with anybody, but for whatever reason they had trouble getting over you know, uh, Disco, as cheesy as that character is on paper, man, he knew how to get it over. And what made Disco a great worker was not that he knew every wrestling move in the world or that he could pull off and, and perform every wrestling move in the world. Is he knew what he could do and how to maximize it and get the most out of it and put it together in a very creative way, put it together in an entertaining way. He knew how to, exactly what you say, how to get heat, how to get over with the fans. Man, you hit that Disco Inferno music, it come out. I think those are the type of characters that sort of transcend wrestling. Those are the things that people remember, and that's what I strove to do as well. And, you know, I, I, I always – I thought Disco was great. Disco – this is another thing that happens sometimes when people get rubbed the wrong way in wrestling, so to speak, is also you have to understand how to take people. Man, we all come from different areas of the United States and the world, for that matter. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different personalities. We, we're, we're, we're unified by this thing called wrestling. That's our common ground, and we all had a love for it. We all had a passion for it. But, man, we were so diametrically different, everybody is, outside of just wrestling. But if you know how to take people, like what I was saying about Terry Taylor, there's a lot of people that I have met over the years that never liked Terry because they always thought he was rude. They always thought that he was condescending. They thought that he was arrogant. They just didn't get along with him. I took Terry as he was. I thought, this is just a guy that, is a little sarcastic and likes being that way, and that's just the, the way that he knows how to cut up with people. Same way with Disco. Disco was somebody that could be extremely sarcastic. He could be a little mouthy, to be honest about it, but he never meant it in a bad way. He meant it in good fun. If Disco was ribbing you or saying something negative towards you or if he was really razzing you or giving you a hard time, man, he was doing it because he liked you and just enjoyed hanging out with you and thought you were a good person. I was always worried about the guys that didn't say anything to you. <laughs> you know, I got thick skin, man. And uh, and I, I could tell when somebody's just saying something out of fun and out of jest or if they're actually serious about it and they mean it. Man, I always took all those guys um, at face value and, and, and took them to be exactly what they – you know, claimed to be, and I thought that if I had a problem with them, then they would just tell me straight up, man to man, and that always seemed to be the case. That always seemed to serve me well. So I considered Disco a great friend. We always got along great. We had great matches. We had great chemistry in the ring, which is another sign of a good worker. I always thought Disco had great chemistry with most everybody that he worked with. 
man, he could pull off a good match with pretty much anybody. And what more could you ask for out of a worker in the wrestling business? Did you learn a lot from him? Because at this point, he's on TV for about four years and with WCW. You learn a lot from him as far as, you know, in-ring and really working the crowd? Maybe storytelling. Maybe storytelling and entertainment and understanding that, hey, again, understanding that aspect of you can be the greatest wrestler in the world, but just being the greatest wrestling in the world in and of itself isn't going to get you over you better bring a little bit more to the table than that. I'll give you a perfect example of a lesson in that that I got, and this is not so much Disco Inferno as it is Disco and a couple of other guys, and I think he may have been there that day. And Canyon was there that day, and Diamond Dallas Page was there that day, and we were all in the ring at the power plant just training and messing around. And I was trying to get a cheap pop from the boys. That's all that I was trying to do. I was trying to do something that I thought was funny and get them to laugh about it and think, hey, that's, that's, that's over with me. That's funny. And so what I came up with was, at that time, The Rock had just started doing the people's elbow. You had Scotty Too Hotty was doing the worm gimmick and then doing a move off of it. And you had Brian, you had the road dog, doing the shimmy shake deal, right, and dropping the knee. So just as a joke, as a rib, I go, hey, Paige, this is what I'm going to start doing in my matches. I'm going to jab the guy three times, and I'm going to dance like James Brown, and then I'm going to do the splits, and I'm going to pop up, and I'm going to clothesline him. And while I'm saying this, I'm acting it out, and I'm doing it in real time. And Paige stops, and he goes, bro, you got to do that in every match. And he's dead serious, and I think he's ribbing me. And I start laughing. I go, man, stop. He goes, no, I'm serious. you got to do that in every match. And dang, if he wouldn't ride, man. I mean, I started doing that. It became a signature move, and it, the fans would pop on it. And then I had something that I could think of how I come in and come out of it, how I can do it sometimes if I'm wrestling somebody that it doesn't make sense for me to hit them with that because maybe they're a giant or a monster or a main event guy. Then I can do it. They can duck it, and then they can hit me with something. And it's entertainment. It's gaga. It's ha-ha. Now, there is a perfect example of something that is not a great fundamental technical wrestling move but, man, it brings some entertainment, and if it's done the right way, it can still be very believable. That's the sort of thing that a Disco Inferno can teach me because Disco is going to have those matches where he's not just going to do a swinging neck breaker. He's going to kick you in the gut, and then he's going to do one of the silly little disco dances, and then he's going to hit you with a swinging neck breaker. That's over. That's over with me. That was over then, and that's something that would still get over today. Absolutely. And at this point, Vince Russo is in, and he's the head writer, the head booker for WCW. What was your thoughts on Vince? Uh, Vince came in with me with a, with a blank slate, Vince and Ed both. I liked them both from the get-go as far as their personalities went. We loved the energy that they brought from the beginning. Uh, there was a lot of politics that were going on in the corporation that I'm going to be honest with you, for somebody me on my level, really didn't touch me at that point. I just wanted to work, and I wanted to be a part of the team. And, hey, my mentality was whoever it is that's in charge, whoever the head booker is, people are making that decision that I don't have any control over. I just want to do the best job I can do for whoever comes in. So I really wasn't choosing sides. Excuse me. I wasn't choosing sides over an Eric Bischoff or choosing a Vince Russo or or being on one team or the other team. I was just trying to do the best job I could with whoever came in. And with that being said, when Vince came in, it wasn't that I had a problem with Eric when Eric was there before. I thought Eric did a great job leading the company. But Vince, it is true that Vince came in with Ed with this new energy. There was this renewed kind of uh, 
of hope and excitement that suddenly this stuff is really going to take off because he brings a different perspective and it's going to be far more entertaining and it's going to bring us to a new era and this is how WCW is going to kick down the door going into the new millennium and everything else, you know. That was sort of the mentality and thoughts behind it. For me, I, I tell you what I did appreciate. I did appreciate that Vince seemed to be somebody that recognized talent and wanted to come in and sit down with individual talents that he thought brought something to the table. And for the first time, I did have somebody coming to me and talking to me one-on-one about some ideas of what they thought was possible and wasn't possible as opposed to just booking me on the show and then telling me what match I'm in. And, and that was important to me just because it made me feel like I had more worth and more value to the company. So when Vince came in and Ed came in, they took an assessment and the lay of the land. And, and obviously, with any situation like that, right off the gate, you know, there's not enough room on the card for everybody every single night. And recognizing that, the way the misfits and actions sort of evolved from the get-go was they sat down with me, Booker T, uh, Chavo Guerrero, uh, and Hugh Morris, and Van Hammer. And they said to us, look, we think all you guys kind of bring something to the table. Uh, and they didn't want to send us home, but they really didn't have specific ideas for us. So their mentality was to kind of throw us all together in a group and see what happened with it. And the way that it was pitched to us and sold to us from the very beginning was that every show that you write for, you need some comic relief on that show. And their mentality at the very beginning was that we were going to be comic relief. And um, as comic relief, they said, uh, tell you what, go home and watch the movie Stripes if you haven't seen it before. That's what we perceive with you guys. That's kind of what we envision this turning into. And I think it's a testament, especially to the core guys there, me, Chavo, and Hugh, of, of our working ability. That something that was considered a sideshow and just was supposed to be comic relief got over to the extent that it did without some kind of major push. Yeah, and who comes up with the name Corporal Cage? Is that you or maybe Russo throwing it out there or just no, a that, collaboration? No, that was a company thing. They, they kind of named us. They kind of named us, and they came up with Corporal Cage. And my mentality was this. I didn't have a problem with the Corporal Cajun thing at all. I just said, let me get this straight. I'm Corporal Cajun now instead of the Raging Cajun Lash LaRue. Um, you want us all to wear uh, camouflage. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's going to be sort of your uniform. That's going to be your, your costume is, is camouflage. And they were just sending runners down, production assistants down to the local um, uh, Army surplus store and just buying the urban camouflage that came in different colors. And they just kind of bought a bunch of it and brought it back to us and let us choose from it. And I said, let me get this straight. As long as I'm wearing camouflage, you don't care how I wear it? And they go, no, not really. I said, so I can bring some of my own character to it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we want you to bring some of your own character to it. And I said, okay, if that's the case, I'll take one pair of each color of those pants. I took it to the wardrobe lady. I said, can you split them up the, di- up the middle and sew one color leg to the other color leg just so I look different and I stand out? And me and Chavo, for instance, don't look just alike, or me and Hugh don't look just alike. And we all just kind of made each one of those things our own. I took the bucket hat, and I had this idea of, of cutting the top out of, the, out of it, just pulling my hair through the top of it. And then I said, you know, if I'm wearing camouflage, I'm Corporal Cajun. Can I still wear my Mardi Gras beads and my sunglasses? Well, sure, of course you can. And we would just add different accessories like that that fit our own characters, and that was all things that we did on our own. 
You know, they called us the Misfits in Action and then put us together and named us Corporal Cajun, Lieutenant Loco, and Huge Erection. But outside of that, they let us take the ball and run with it, and, and we did. And then there were certain things that we just came up with on our own. For instance, the MIA logo. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but uh, WCW sold some T-shirts there for a while with the MIA logo on it. I created that logo from scratch. I just drew it. I hand drew it. I did the letters by hand, everything else, and I gave it to WCW. They sent it to their uh, creative department who polished it up and made it more sleek and slick and professional. But it still was essentially exactly the logo that I created. I still got copies of my original drawings from it. Um, Major Guns. Her wife beater T-shirt that said "Bombs Away." When we first started with those wife beater T-shirts, I came up with that that idea of "Bombs Away," and I would just take a sharpie that I carried around for autographs, and I would literally write "Bombs Away" on every single one of those wife beaters before she ripped it off each night and gave mouth to mouth to whoever it was that was getting it that night being resuscitated. You know, and then finally WCW <laughs> that got over, so they started just printing them up, so I wouldn't have to hand write them. Which was a pretty cool uh, gimmick. Like you said, they didn't have a lot for you, but they throw you together, and all of a sudden you guys are all getting over, and then you throw Sergeant AWOL in there too. And, you know, you've got even more kind of just guys that are able to get over without really getting a push, which is kind of a good way to really stay on television. That's right. And also chemistry is extremely important. And you just mentioned Sergeant AWOL. Jerry was such a great guy. Jerry, too, was such a great guy in – um, the way that he became a part of our group was, and I'm just being completely honest, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I don't have anything negative to say about him from a personal standpoint. I always liked Van Hammer a lot, and I always thought he was a great guy. We got along great in the locker room, but chemistry-wise, he didn't fit with me and Chavo and Hugh. You know, what I was saying before about the types in the wrestling business, like, an, like, a, like a Brad Armstrong or an Arn Anderson, or a Dr. Tom Pritchard. You know, we're just cut from a different cloth. You know, we're, we're hardworking guys and just want to do a good job, and, and we want to be recognized for our talents and our abilities, and we just want to be given a fair shake. And everybody wants to be ultra successful and be a top guy in the business, but ultimately you just want, to, you want people to appreciate the quality of your work, you know, and you want to be a good guy that carries yourself well and gets a good reputation among your peers. And Van Hammer, from the very beginning, when they put Hammer with us, um, I can remember he would go individually to, like, Ed Ferreira and, 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 uh, and Vince Russo, and he'd go, all right, I'm on board with this, man, but if you're going to put us together in a group, then uh, we need to start talking about action figures and merchandising and all this other kind of stuff that maybe that is important from a business standpoint. I don't know. But for guys that are just the workhorses and the grinders like me and a Hugh Morris and a Chavo, that's a little bit of putting the cart before the horse. Like we understood and recognized that we're going to have to get this thing over before you start talking about merchandising and things like that. I mean, that's a little bit of a heat-seeking type proposition. You know, or he would complain about certain things that they wanted us to do or how they wanted us to do things. Or, you know, um, yeah, he was a little bit of a squeaky wheel, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and that just didn't mesh with our type of personalities. Jerry, on the other hand, AWOL was the exact opposite. He was just like we were. He was cut from the same cloth. And, and so we were just far more comfortable with him part of the group instead of Van Hammer. And so there was just this kind of mutual um, parting of ways. And I think, I think Hammer saw it too. I don't think that he was ever completely comfortable with us as a wrestling group, as a faction together. And we were never completely comfortable with him. 
You know, we, we felt far more uh, close to Jerry. He was one of us in and out of the ring, and I think that that's important. That stuff has to work. If that doesn't work and, and you can't be just as close outside the ring as you are inside the ring or vice versa, then it's just it's not going to get over. And we were smart enough to see that. And, man, we, we were just guys that loved each other. You know, we worked hard. We loved each other, and we loved being on the road with each other. We had a genuine friendship going on there. And so it was easy to work for one another, which means it's sort of like a match. You know, the great thing about wrestling is this. If you are constantly working to have a great match, the best match that you can have, and you're both working to that end and putting everything you can into that, then you're going to get over in the process. If the match gets over, then both of you are going to get over. Same sort of thing, man. If you're working for the betterment of the entire group and you're looking out for your brothers who are in that group with you, if that entire group gets over, you're going to get over in the same by the same process. And we – we celebrated one another's accomplishments together, you know, and we were there for one another no matter what. Uh, you could see that when Hugh, when, when Bill won the, uh, the U.S. title. I mean, that was a genuine outpouring of respect and admiration from all of us. And even the locker room kind of pouring out that night. I got goosebumps that night. I get goosebumps when I think about it now because – that was a real raw emotional moment for us because it solidified a lot of hard work in a journey in a, uh, a lifetime of a career that he had put into getting to that point, and we got to ride that wave with him. A big moment for you guys would be all the way in Australia, October of 2000, you and Loco defeat Jindrak and O'Hare and win the WCW World Tag Team Championships, it doesn't last for long, but you guys win the titles. What was your thoughts on that? I thought it was a huge, huge honor. Um, I, I think we probably could have done a little bit more with it. You know, I think we, we could have had a, a pretty good run with the tag team titles, but you always think about that hindsight being twenty twenty. Here's the raw nitty-gritty truth behind things like that is – that means far more to you when you're looking back on your career than it does in the moment of your career. And the reason why I say that is this is, man, when you're hardworking and you're on the road 300 days out of the year and you're just trying to always every night do the best job that you can possibly do, I wasn't thinking in terms of championships and personal accolades and, and, and stroking my ego every night. So I didn't know that they were going to do that with us until we showed up that night. And they told us the idea of putting the titles on us. And then they put the titles on us for 30 seconds. So about the time that you've got it, it's gone again. So in the moment, it really, to be honest, it felt more like a high spot in a match than it felt like a pivotal moment in your wrestling career. Uh, it has far more significance for me looking back now, especially being able to say that, you know, I was one half of the tag team champions, you know, for one night. But stuff like that happens in your wrestling career. You know, for instance, I never get credit for being cruiserweight champion. I was cruiserweight champion when I defeated Rey Mysterio Jr. at some house show randomly one, one night, you know, that nobody ever knows about because it really didn't go down to the records books. It was just meant for one night, one night only. And then we're on to the next town. So, you know, if you take those things too seriously, then you can get caught up in sort of chasing your tail from the standpoint of, you know, you're playing that should have, would have, could have, start stop type of business and my mentality had always been man if you just go out there and you work hard your talent's going to speak for itself and the cream is always going to rise to the top and you're going to get recognized accordingly so it was a very sweet beautiful moment but um it was just a moment you know 
Yes. So when you won the Cruiserweight title, though, to talk, talk about that just for a second, was that one of those things where it gets reversed? No, it was just one of those things where the next night we're wrestling again and he gets it right back again. You're just trading it back and forth, and you're doing it just for the local crowd. That's all there is to it. Oh, wow. It, it's just one of those things. It's not really uh, known or in, in the record book, which is one of those no. odd, odd things. Yeah. Yeah, it's not in the record book. It's not really known, and it's not um, – you know, it's not common knowledge. and But then at the same time, I, again, I go back to I'm not the guy that could sit here and tell you I remember in October of 1999 being in Kansas City and, and having this match with this guy at this particular time. I just have never been that guy, man. I've looked at it more like a body of work from that standpoint. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. A perfect example would be if I was somebody that placed way too much emphasis on the things that were said about me or written about me in the record books, I would never live up to the back of my trading card where I'm the rookie of the year in WCW. And it says on, on the back something to the effect of where were you, where were you the first time you saw Michael Jordan step on a basketball court? Or where were you the first time you heard Aerosmith step on stage and play? And that was probably the same feeling you got the first time you saw Lashley wrestle. Now, come on, man. Nobody's going to ever live up to that sort of billing, you know. So you can't take that kind of stuff too seriously because if you do, then you wind up – that's your whole identity, man. That's what you're wrapped up in. And those are the guys that wind up finding themselves on the back end of their career. They don't know what to do with their life because they don't know how to not be a wrestler. With you guys in the Misfits, you said you guys had great chemistry, which you definitely did. You also had a big feud with Team Canada, which was Lance Storm's group. Major Guns would eventually turn on you guys and join that group. Elix Skipper is part of that group. And at this point, oddly enough, Jim Duggan (laughs) is a heel in that group, which was just pretty shocking for the time. But it was like, what, Jim Duggan, Team Canada? What did you think about the feud with Team Canada? I thought that it was great because, again, you get caught up in the bubble that is professional wrestling and you're on the road 300 days out of the year. You don't always have the perspective of somebody that's standing on the porch looking through the window into the house because you're inside the house, if that makes sense. So you're never quite certain whether or not this stuff is getting over or how fans are reacting to it as much as um, outside of just hearing their reaction in the ring. So what you're gauging things on, to be honest, at least from my perspective at the time, is you're going, you mean week in and week out we get to work with Lance Storm, Elix Skipper, and Jim Duggan, you know, with Hacksaw? Man, all three of those guys, again, you start talking about chemistry. Chemistry is not just important in a team. It's important with your opponent in order to have good matches. Those were guys we had great chemistry with and we had a lot of fun with. And so we looked at it like, man, we are getting paid to go out every single night and have – feuds and be creative and wrestle with these guys we get to dance with these guys every night and get paid for it and you're going to challenge us to see how creative we can be to do something different tonight than what we did the night before sign me up man i'm on board now with this the next thing is basically misfits in action get quote-unquote disbanded and you're quote-unquote honorably discharged what did you kind of think about the the breaking up of the group the only thing that about the breaking up of the group is you're asking yourself, what's next? But, again, the, the, because there was no plan really on the backside of it. It was just one of those things where the, the powers that be, for lack of a better way of saying it and the coin of phrase, uh, the powers that be just decided this thing had kind of run its course 
And to be honest with you, I think it had less to do with the misfits and action not working as much as it had to do with we got over to such an extent that they saw Hugh kind of stepping up to that next level, and they could do something with him. And it was just a natural evolution of the group. That The sad thing about that is that so often you don't know what else to do with the group, then you can always break them up and create some storylines from there. But you didn't really know where the thing was going, and unfortunately running parallel to that is – you don't know where the direction of the company is going. So on TV, you got the misfits in action not really having any direction and sort of faltering and falling and breaking up. And then at the same time, behind the scenes, you've got a lot of uh, upheaval in the corporate structure of WCW at the time and a lot of uncertainty. And those things were running parallel lines. And so you really didn't have any solid ground to stand on character-wise, or in real life. With kind of the, the next step for you, it's kind of, you know, back to the cruiserweight division a bit and kind of, you know, not really doing too much, like as far as storyline wise, but then all of a sudden February of 2001, you get a United States championship match versus Rick Steiner. And then boom, we don't see you again, obviously, you know, a month later or so WWE is bought by Vince and the WWF, but what was the plan after the Steiner match, which by the way, was a little bit stiff. It seemed like, <laughs> you know what's funny about that is to this day that's one of those things I always wear as as a badge of honor and the reason why I wear it as a badge of honor is I hear more about that match than I do any match in my career about how stiff it was let me right out from the from the outside set say there was nothing stiff about that match at all you know really in fact wow. yeah okay. Yeah, I see. I see Twitter. I see Twitter uh, threads and everything else back in the day when I was still on social media. People, were, you know, giving giving Robbie, giving Rick a, a hard time. Man, why'd you beat up? You know, Flash Larue, and well, did y'all have heat? What was the deal? Everybody wants to know the backstory behind that. Here's the honest to goodness backstory behind that, John. And ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I would not have told this entire story because. I still tried to protect the business, and I still believe in kayfabe and everything else. Man, everything is out there now, and everybody knows the inner workings. So here's the honest-to-goodness truth of how this went. WCW, which was up for sale at the time, um, was without real strong leadership. And Eric Bischoff, the rumors anyway, and a lot of it coming from Eric and the way he carried himself backstage at the time, was kind of back in the mix as the guy that was in charge suddenly. And Russo was kind of sidelined. And Eric stepping back into that role and sort of calling the shots a little bit informally, while at the same time the rumor was he had put together this group and this uh, of business guys that were going to buy the company, that, that Eric was going to be the new owner of WCW. And that was kind of the working knowledge for most of the boys in the back. That was the rumor I was hearing. That's what everybody else was hearing. And it was solidified by the fact that Eric was sort of called the shots. And what Eric asked you to do, you know, you were treating him like he was the boss guy because he was assumed that he was going to be the guy that was in charge. And Fitz in Action had kind of been summarily disbanded. They, they hadn't really con- continued uh, the storyline of um, – of of really breaking us up or going anywhere with that breakup. And they had just suddenly come to the decision that we were all going to go back to being Chavo was going to be Chavo, I was going to be Lash LaRue. And if you remember, a matter of fact, in that match that you're talking about, I was wrestling in my regular tights as the Raging Cage and Lash LaRue again. And, and part of that was 
this new group coming in and new leadership and, and Eric and, and the new writers, they just kind of dropped a lot of those old Russo storylines without any kind of conclusion or anything else. And I got to the show that night. I found out that night that I was wrestling Rick Steiner. And this is honestly exactly what happened that night. I'm backstage, and Eric walks past me. And he goes, you need to cut your hair. Just like that. And, again, uh, that could come off kind of off-putting if you don't know how to take people. I didn't take it personally at the time, but I just kind of thought, well, I wonder where that's coming from. And he goes, it looks really goofy just flopping all over the place in the ring. You need a different look. You need to cut your hair. And he just keeps walking. And I don't know what to think about that outside of the fact of if this guy's going to be the boss man and he's telling me to cut my hair, I guess I need to come to terms with the idea of cutting my hair. And then he comes back to me maybe a, an hour or so later, not long before the show starts, and I know I'm wrestling Rich that night, and he pulls me to the side and he just explains to me that, you know, they felt like a lot of the older guys or a lot of the more established guys, I shouldn't say older because the guys weren't that old. They were just established and they had been around. And a lot of the guys that were there pre-Russo and were the top guys, there were some guys that kind of got pushed to the side or got relegated to a different position and didn't get treated with the same uh, level of where they were on the card and things like that. Once Russo came in, he kind of put an emphasis on some different people. And one of the uh, guys that they felt like had lost some of their steam and some of their stature under Russo was Rick Steiner. You know, while Scott enjoyed this great push and became this big megastar, they kind of felt like Rick had lost a little bit of that monster, tough guy quality idea that he could just go out and kill anybody on any given night. And there's, you know, there's some agreement with that. I can't, I can't fault that. I mean, they did some goofy stuff with him during the Russo time. So Eric kind of pulled me aside, told me I was booked against Rick that night. And here's their idea that they had for me. They wanted to reestablish Rick as this monster guy that could just destroy people left and right, the dog-faced gremlin that people should fear. And while at the same time giving me a reason to be off TV and get the MIA stuff behind me, and they wanted me to lose a little bit of weight. They were giving me a little bit of a hard time because I got a little pudgy with the MIA thing. I got to wear a T-shirt. I didn't have to wrestle without a shirt on. So I put on a little bit of body fat. They wanted me to lean down a little bit and be strictly a cruiserweight again. And Eric sold it to me like, look, we want you to cut your hair. We want you to lean down. We want you to go home for maybe four or six weeks. We'll bring you back out. He said, I'll put the cruiserweight title on you. and We'll give you a little bit of a run with it. That's the way that it was sold to me. And so we went out there and had the match with Rick, and Rick gets to just annihilate me in the match, beat me up, put me in the ambulance, and give me a reason to be off TV. And, it, and the match went just like it was meant to go. It, meant, it went exactly the way it was booked to go. You know, in fact, it goes back to my old school way of starting out in WCW when I was doing nothing but getting killed in five minutes by everybody that I wrestled and doing straight-up jobs. And my mentality was, even if I'm not getting anything in the match, then can I at least get my character over? And it was kind of my idea at the beginning of that thing. I asked Rick, do you mind? I'll just look at the crowd, and I'll do the little sideburn gimmick, give up, ooh-wee, and when I turn around, you just start putting the heat on me and kill me from there. And, and he thought that was great. And so that, that punch that everybody thinks is so stiff was just a great punch. He hits me with the punch. Boom. I go down. We have the match. He, he does his, his match. He does his stuff. I put him over. I'm hurt. 
I'm putting the ambulance. I sell it like crazy. I go home, and it just so happened that, you know, I cut my hair, and during that time that I'm sitting at home for the next two weeks, the company gets sold, and Vince buys it out of the blue and shocks the wrestling world, including the wrestlers themselves who had no idea that was going to happen. Absolutely crazy and shocking. And uh, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, I think there's more to it, and a lot of people don't know. Like, you know, if Bischoff's going to buy it for $50 million, why would you sell to Vince for 4 or $5 million? I mean, there's got to be some other factors at play. I know TBS and, and uh, Turner and, and AOL and Time Warner and that whole merger kind of destroyed everything internally, and they didn't want wrestling anymore on the, on the channels. But, man, what a mess that was. And if you think about it, the guy, Jamie Kellner, who was a part of the sale and did the sale, arguably could be known as one of the worst you know, um, I guess company runners or whatever you want to say, uh, executives, company executives. If if you're only going to make five million when you could have made fifty million off a deal, I mean that doesn't look good for them. Just just thinking about it. No, it doesn't look good for them. And and I'm certainly not that business guy. And and I wasn't um, I wasn't privy to all the inner workings of what was going on there with all those deals. But just with the rumor and the innuendo that was that was going around the locker room and everything else. I mean, it was obvious that you were just dealing with a corporation there in Time Warner that cared far more about uh, consolidating all this media power than they cared about the individual companies that were going to get caught up in that. And there, it wasn't just WCW, you know, that, that wound up coming out and getting a raw deal on that. You know, there was a time when Ted, Ted Turner owned about everything there was in Atlanta, you know, whether it's a piece of the Braves or the Falcons or whoever else, you know, and all these professional teams and things like that. And then uh, you could see the writing on the wall, as a matter of fact, just the, uh, again, devaluing what the company is just by pulling us from TV. You know, you pull the TV uh, programming, which makes no sense at all because you own the TV programming. So why that couldn't work out, I don't know. But suddenly you take WCW product off of TBS and TNT, and there's very little value to it anymore to any prospective buyers. And I think that that's what ruined it for for Bischoff and, and, and his would-be partners. And that suddenly devalued it as well. And there's a lot of different conspiracy theories and everything behind all of that. And it really suffice it to say, I can just speak from my own perspective. And my own perspective is I'm sitting at home and – I'm watching it live on TV when Shane McMahon comes out on Nitro like everybody else is. And uh, with all the rest of the other guys that I was close to at the time that I'm speaking to, and I'm te- you know, texting wasn't a thing at the time, but when we talk on the, on the phone and that sort of thing, you know, their reaction was just as shocked as I was. I was probably a little bit more shocked because I'm sitting at home, but my understanding is even the guys that were booked at Nitro that night had no idea of what was about to happen. So shocking. And really, if you think about it, it stinks for the wrestling business because you don't have a main competitor. You know, Vince gobbles everything up. It's a monopoly. The guys could possibly be making less money because if you're going to go back and forth, you can negotiate off each other. So if you think about it, definitely a shocking thing, but I I think a really bad thing that happened to the wrestling business. Kind of killed it, actually. I I agree with that. I think part of the reason why it did is because it, it, it killed it from just an interest for the fans, from that standpoint, because, look, anytime there's competition, it breeds interest, you know. Uh, I think of the old Coke and Pepsi wars from the 80s, or Domino's and Pizza Hut, or all these different brands that you pit against each other, Burger King and McDonald's. You know, that just generates interest. 
and you force your competitor to become better and better and better. You have to evolve, or otherwise you're going to get gobbled up. And and that's the way it is from the wrestling fan perspective. And then from the perspective of the wrestler, if you are looking at the competition and you know that there's competition, you're constantly having to be pushed to get better and better and better. Whereas if there's only one company, once you find a comfort zone, you can kind of coast a little bit and you're not um, challenged quite as much and certainly not as readily as you are when there's competition on the other side there that people can just switch over to a different channel and watch a different product. You get signed by the WWF, I guess. Is that automatic? Or is there, I know you said, yeah, obviously you had to tell them your name's Lash LaRue and stuff, but is that just an automatic? They're just going to gobble up every contract and then boom, you go to HWA? No, no. Actually, I, I had originally taking it, taken it as an extreme uh, form of flattery on my part. Um, and then that changed pretty quickly. But the way that it went was this, is, uh, you know, I'm sitting at home. There's a lot of uncertainty just because this is the first time I've had anybody, and I'm speaking again, this is before WCW was bought out. The first time I'd ever had any straight-up attention from somebody as high up as, say, an Eric Bischoff to come to me on a personal basis and say, hey, we've got some plans for you. And so they sent me home. And so I, I got right after trying to lean down. I was in the best shape of my life at that point. I got lean. I cut my hair like they asked me to cut my hair. I had new promo pictures taken, the whole deal, and I paid for all that stuff out of pocket. And I just sat at home. Now, suddenly, the, the company got sold, and I didn't hear anything, man. I'm calling around to different friends and, and other people in WCW, and nobody really knows anything. And after about two weeks, I get a call from Johnny Ace. And Johnny Ace, by that point, had been established in WCW as working with talent relations. And then he became sort of the liaison uh, once – Vince bought the company for Vince when it came to the WCW guys. And he worked very close with Jim Ross in that, you know, and JR. And uh, so I get a call from Johnny Ace out of the blue. And he just goes, Lash, Johnny Ace. Yes, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Listen, man, I got some good news and I got some bad news. All right, Johnny, give me the bad news. The bad news is Vince is only interested in 24 guys from WCW. And I thought to myself, well, that can't be good because what did we have, 160 on the roster or something like that at the time that were getting paid? And I thought, well, that's not good. He goes, well, the good news is you're one of them. And I said, wonderful, great, Johnny. What do I need to do? Am I signing a new contract? What's going on? And he goes, he goes no, for the time being, just hold, hold what you got. We're working all that stuff out. But right now, uh, he's just going, WWE is going to assume the contracts of these WCW guys. I said, all right, sounds good to me, Johnny. He goes, you sit, sit tight, we'll call you back in a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of weeks go by, and he calls me back with just a little update. Not much has changed at that point. Then a couple of more weeks go by, and during that time that a couple of more weeks are going by, my contract is about to roll over to my last year in WCW, and I was about to get a significant pay increase. And Johnny calls me up, and he goes, Hey, Lash. I said, yes, sir. He says, listen, uh, Vince wants you to sign a WWE contract. I said, okay, wonderful. That's fine with me. That's good. He goes, look, it's going to look like a significant pay cut. 
But what you need to understand is the WWE contracts are structured differently from the WCW contracts at the time. Now, in WCW, John, we, we, what we have is we had this set. This is pretty standard for most guys. There, there may have been some outliers, and there may have been some guys that had some special carve-outs. But for most of the meat and potato guys there in WCW, we had a set salary that we got every year, you know, yearly income. And the only additional money you got to that was merchandising. You know, you didn't get special revenues for pay-per-views. You didn't get draws off of shows or anything like that. You just got your paycheck, and then you got if there was merchandising from a video game or T-shirt sales or something like that, you might get a merchandising check. Well, WWE's contracts was a far less um, uh, bottom to it you know, standard contract was far less what your guaranteed income was, but you got draws off of everything that you did. You got residuals and you got revenue checks and everything else, right? And so the way that it was sold to me was you'll take this big pay cut, but really by the end of the year, if you work as hard for Vince as you worked for WCW, you're going to make more money at the end of the year because you're going to get paid extra for all these other shows that you do. And that, that checked out with me, and that made sense on a couple of different levels. It made sense because I'd always been told in WCW that I was a workhorse and that really my career would take off if I ever went to WWE because they valued guys that were willing to work as hard as I worked. And guys that would be on the road all the time and didn't mind the travel and didn't mind putting in the, the, the days and the hours and the months and the weeks and the years – Man, they made a great, great amount of money because Vince would – there was so much uh, upside. There was no ceiling to the upside. So that sounded good to me. That sounded very promising to me. And I took a $100,000 pay cut and signed a contract. Now, it also didn't bother me for another reason, and I told Johnny Ace this at the time. I said, you know, I'm not a greedy person. The way that I saw it was I'm getting to live my dream. If I can pay my bills and live my dream, you know, I'm not greedy. I'm not going to sit there and try to hold people up for more money and more money and more money. I was just happy to be on the team and happy to be given an opportunity. So I signed a new contract with them, um, with, with WWE, took this huge pay cut, took a $100,000 pay cut, and then they called me a week later and, uh, and told me that they wanted me to go to HWA, go up to Cincinnati, and help train some guys. That's the way that it was sold to me and that I would be there for about four weeks to knock the ring rust off. And then after four weeks, maybe they could start bringing me back out on TV because Vince liked the character and liked what I was doing and everything else. That's what I was told at the time. Uh, whether or not, I think now looking back, he probably didn't have a clue who I was. If I, if I saw Vince McMahon today, he probably wouldn't recognize me. or know. My, my career just was not significant enough, I don't think, to rate that. And I get that now. But at the time, you know, I just took it at face value and took it as, okay, that's the working theory. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to get back in, in ring shape, and then they'll be ready to bring me back out there and, and bring me on TV. Well, I get up there to Cincinnati. Oh, and then I asked them, I said, well, you know, that's more than 300 miles. You know, anything over 300 miles, they fly you. And so I asked Johnny, are you going to send me an airline ticket? He goes, no, we just need you to be there by next Monday. You're probably better off driving your own vehicle because you're going to have to make some shots when you get up there, and you don't want to have to pay for a rental car the whole time you're there. And uh, you'd just be better off if you drove up there. And I wasn't going to argue with them or cause any problems. I said, okay, sure, I can do that. No big deal. It's about an eight and a half hour drive from Alabama to Cincinnati. So I get my affairs in order, and I go up there, 
thinking I'm going to be there for about four weeks, and four weeks turned into nine months. And nine months of training every day and going through essentially what I had already been through in the power plant. I felt like I had paid my dues at that point, and I felt like I had established myself at that point. And, I, man, I was starting to hit a wall up there. And, and I'll be the first to say, hindsight being 2020, I've always prided myself on having a great attitude and being easy to work with. I think I became a little jaded up there, a little cynical, a little bitter. I would drive from Cincinnati to, um, to Louisville and help train guys there in Louisville some and do TV tapings in Louisville and do some shows for them. And then I would have drive back to Cincinnati. We were having to do shows up there locally. We were having to train four or five days a week. Um, guys like me, Jamie Noble, uh, Rick Cornell, and Alan Funk are all sharing a one-room one hotel room. You know, all guys that had been on TV, all guys that had, you know, done okay for ourselves, and we were in the wrestling business already, and we're having to kind of slum it for basic pay while we're watching guys on this new show called Tough Enough live in a mansion that had never done anything in the wrestling business. So you can imagine how that kind of played with your psyche at the time um, when you have all this uncertainty and you feel like it's unfair. And now I realize now with maturity and with some age behind me and in hindsight being 2020, man, they don't mean for it to ever be like that. That's just the way that it happened to shake down for me. And there was a lot of other guys that were in the same boat. You know, and it was wrong for me to feel the way that I felt about it at the time. But, man, I was starting to crack. And I could feel myself starting to crack psychologically because here I am not knowing when the end is going to come inside. Nobody's really communicating with me from the office of what's next. Um, I think I went to one or two WWE shows. And in a lot of ways, they kind of didn't make you feel like part of the family. You know, you get to the shows and you'd have to wear a guest pass in the back as opposed to somebody that's already under contract and one of the boys. That just kind of messed with you a little bit. And then I think that there was some heat there between your WWE guys and your WCW guys because there's so much uncertainty over who has a job and who doesn't. And you look back now being a mature guy, and you go, man, all that stuff's just silly. We should all just kind of get along and do good business together. But you can't help but to get caught up in the politics of the time that you're stuck in. And everybody is colored by their own life experiences and my experiences at that time and my experience at that time was okay i'm having to train all week long thursday i would take all of my gear and all of my laundry and throw it in the back of my truck i would drive eight and a half hours back home to uh, to alabama because the only day that i got off was friday i'd get home about three o'clock in the morning on friday i would have all day friday home with my family, and then I had to get up in the morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to drive back to Cincinnati to work a show that night that I'm not getting paid for. And I'm not getting any more money than what my downside guarantee is because even though I'm working as much, if not more, than I was in WCW, none of these are considered official WWE shows. So I'm getting my downside minimal, and that's it. And it was barely enough to pay my bills. It was barely enough to get by, and it was just frustrating. It was difficult. And it was hard, and, uh, and and probably in a lot of ways I let it get the better of me. But it was just it was what it was at the time, man. I look back now and I say, you know, what are you going to do? Look at all that talent that was around in WWE, and there was a lot of guys that were far better than I was and far bigger stars than I was that weren't getting a shot either. So I shouldn't cry over that spilled milk, but that was just my experience. So you requested your release. Well. 
that's a funny story. And and Tom kind of comes in this story too. And 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 Doc kind of knew, for lack of a better way of putting it, and the difficulties that we were going through. And to his credit, and I've always thanked him for that, and I still thank him for it to this day. You know, they would kind of check in and check out up there in in, in uh, HWA, and they would come and have these meetings. But they were always these vague general meetings. And when I say they, I'm referring to office guys. Sometimes it would be Johnny Ace. Sometimes it would be a Bob Clark or somebody like that that they would send down there just to kind of rally the troops and, and, and kind of push us forward and tell us, hey, you need to keep working hard and sending tapes up here. Vince is looking at every tape, and you never know when he's going to call you out and have you do a dark match or something. And I'm still thinking to myself, I thought I was signed to be a wrestler and be talent already. Well, you know, dark match sounds like a tryout match or something, you know. And that was just, again, my frame of reference at the time. So I get frustrated. And then there became this round of cuts that they were doing up there in HWA. And I could kind of see the writing on the wall. I was unhappy. And Vince isn't going to keep somebody around that's unhappy. And I don't blame him. I was unhappy. They were unhappy. I wasn't really producing. It was at a point, I was at a point where I wasn't really making them any money and they weren't making me any money. In fact, office guys, and I won't mention these names, they would come up there and they would say things to us like this. They go, well, where are you going to go and make this kind of money just to train to be a wrestler? And that was a wrong thing to say to me, man, because I grew up dirt poor down here in Alabama, man. I lived in some houses growing up where we didn't have running water or electricity because we couldn't afford to pay the bills. There was times when I went to bed hungry at night because we didn't have food in our house. I was homeless my junior and senior year of high school. So when we start talking about living life, you're not going to hold money over my head. You're just not. I'm not that guy, and I'm not going to be motivated by money. So that's the wrong way to try to motivate me. And that had the opposite effect on me. That would make me more bitter and jaded as opposed to motivating me. And so they would say things like that. They would throw things out. So you just kind of, they got to where they were weighing us every week and checking our body fat, you know. And I was so miserable, I'd come in with a cup of coffee and a honey bun. And I'd walk in, man, for the, and I'd do my way in that way. And I'd be biting my honey bun and drinking my coffee while everybody else is kind of nervous whether or not it's going to look bad on their scale if they gained some weight that week or if they weren't leaner. And I got up there, man, and I would just run my mouth. I'd go, yeah, man, I'm on this new diet. I'm getting nine meals a day in. Now, every meal is a cup of coffee and a honey bun, but I'm getting nine meals in. You know, and it just became almost a joke to me. And I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying that's the way that it was. And so, when they started cutting some guys up there, and they had a round of cuts, they came up there and they met with everybody individually. And they brought me in there, and it was a group of guys in there. And Johnny Ace was the main guy that was in there. And Dr. Tom Pritchard was in there as well with these guys that was assessing talent. And Johnny, uh, you know, goes through the normal spiel that they're saying to other people. And he goes, uh, he goes, well, uh, Unfortunately, you know, Vince is no longer looking to do business anymore at this time. There may be something for you further down the road, and we wish you all the best. You know, all the same stuff they say to everybody. And what's going through my mind at this time is, is I'm going, these guys don't have my contract in front of me. They don't realize that I've got a guaranteed contract. You know, one thing that I did do is when I signed over and took such a huge pay cut, a lot of these guys that they signed, and I think this is part of the reason why, Mentally, I was struggling up there in HWA is because I knew that some of these WCW guys that they sent up there had actually signed trainee contracts. I did not sign a trainee contract with WWE. I signed a talent contract, and I signed a three-year guaranteed talent contract. It wasn't for a lot of money, but it was three years guaranteed contract. 
And I was not even a year into it. And I'm going, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, they don't realize I don't have the 90-day cut clause in my contract. They think they can just cut me with just 90 days notice. And so I said, but, you know, if I sit here and I'm thinking to myself, if I sit and I argue with the office right now over what my rights are, what my contract says, or anything else, it's not going to get me anywhere. It's just going to cause conflict. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be here anyway. I'm not making them any money. They're not making me the money that I was promised. I'm barely getting by. It's time for me to just kind of cut my losses. And seeing the writing on the wall, those are the things that are going through my mind while they're telling me that Vince is no longer choosing to do business with me at the time. And that's the way that they like to word it, by the way. I'm not saying that as if I really think Vince was taking a personal interest in me individually, but it's just the way that they word it. And Dr. Tom spoke up, and he said, uh, I just want to say that I think that this is a mistake. I think Lash is a, is a hell of a talent. I think he's a great hand, and I think we're better off with him than we are losing him. And they just they kind of nodded at Tom, like, okay, that's noted, but we're still cutting him, you know. Hmm. And so I just uh, – but in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I'm ready to just get the Duke out of Dodge. I want to leave. I want to go home, and I'll worry about all the – legal aspects of my contract, let all that, let the chips fall where they may, I'm going home. And so I grabbed my stuff. I took it as if I just got fired. I got my truck. I drove home. I came home. I went ahead. This was right before the holidays. And I went on a normal little Christmas trip that I normally go on with my family. And while I'm gone, I get a call from Johnny Ace. And he just says, uh, hey, Lash, we messed up. Uh, we realize your contract is not a guarantee. I said, well, what do you want to do about it? Um, what are we going to do at this point? Uh, does that mean that I'm still with WWE? Do you want me to go back to HWO? No, no, we're too far gone for that. We're past that point. They're already looking at things in your contract like uh, there was something weird about like staying in shape and stuff like that, as if they're going to say I'm too fat to still have a job, you know, and I'm thinking to mm -hmm. myself, there's guys that are farmer. Let's not even go down that road. That's just ridiculous. I'm not saying I've got the best body in the business, but I'm not that far gone. And uh, and it was silly stuff like that. I go, look, look, let me just stop you, John. I, I recognize that right now I don't have a WWE future. Um, I, I realize I'm not making you guys any money, and it's really not making me the money that I was promised are giving me the opportunity that I felt like I was promised. And I realized that there needs to be a parting of ways here. And I don't want to burn a bridge and I don't want to hold anybody up for money. I said, most of these guys have 90 day clauses in their contract. What's that? Three months. Tell you what, you guys pay me for six months so that I can figure out what I'm going to do from here on out. And I'll just take a buyout and go home. And that's what we agreed to. I, I accepted my release for six months pay and they paid me for the next six months in a non-compete non clause and I went from there. And that was my experience with the WWE. And, you know, I was a young kid. Uh, I was still young at that time and I really had not been in the business that long and I probably could have conducted myself from a business standpoint far better. I probably should have been more savvy. Um, I probably should have looked out for my own interests more instead of just trusting people to, to see my heart and my hard work, and reward me accordingly. Um, but it's just naivete. And, and I was never somebody that was going to have sour grapes or be bitter about anything. Very, you know, odd departure, for sure, from WWE. But you end up, 
in TNA, then you do some independence, then you end up retiring in 2006, not, you know, as long as a, a career as, as you would think, you know what I mean? So what kind of led you to TNA and then what kind of led you to retire a few years later? Uh, honestly, this is, this is the truth. This is unvarnished. Let me pull the curtain back and tell you exactly where last Rue's heart was at the time. I, I didn't know what would be next. And I was bouncing around a little bit. I went to Germany and did some tours in Germany. Uh, did, did a few other things, you know, I loved wrestling, man. I loved wrestling, but I just didn't see a lot of opportunities out there. And I loved wrestling, but I tell you what I'm not what I don't enjoy. I started to say I'm not good at, and that's not true. I am good at it. I just don't enjoy. I don't like booking myself out. And the reason why is I've never been a fan of, let's you and I get on the phone and let's go back and forth. And I'm going to tell you what I think I'm worth. And you're going to tell me what you think I'm worth. And we're going to keep going back and forth and haggle over money. And then I've got to decide whether or not once I get there, if what we negotiated is going to work out, if you're going to pay me what I'm worth to pay. And I've got to do that every single time I try to get booked. And on top of that, I've got to call you. I've got to do things to try to drum up my own interest. You know, my phone's not ringing off the hook from wrestling promoters wanting to book me. And, and I'm never one of those kind of people that could get out there and sort of toot my own horn and sell myself because it felt too much like bragging. It's not that I'm not good at marketing. I am. And it's not that I'm not creative. Heck, I told you the whole story of the genesis of Lash LaRue. That's me. You know, I'm creative. I'm good at marketing. Um, I'm artistic. I can put wonderful packages together. I have these great ideas and these great thoughts. All that works wonderfully, especially if I'm doing it for somebody else. But it's not really all that good if I feel like I'm the one that's calling you for a favor or begging for a job or anything else. And I also never could be that guy that was going to gain a lot of friends and then call in favors. You know, oh, well, me and Jeff get along really, really well. Maybe I should give old Jeff Jarrett a call and ask you if I'm going to be a part of this new company. You know, that always felt too much like I'm asking for a favor as opposed to just being hired on my own merit. And I never did well with that. And it's difficult, to be honest, if you don't have at least a little bit of an element of that in your psyche and in your personality for you to find work for yourself in the wrestling business, unless you have somebody that represents you. And so I found that aspect of it a little difficult for me. I was probably a little too trusting of other people when it came to the wrestling business, and I just wanted people to do what they said that they would do. And, um, and so the TNA thing, for instance, that was something that was not a bad drive for me. It, wasn't, it was like a four-hour drive to drive to Nashville every week. I'd go up there, just kind of hang around, hoping that they would give me an opportunity. But I never pushed them super, super hard. And then I always tried to over-deliver, and I probably tried too hard up there. And, um, you know, I, I would talk to Jeff a little bit, and i said, say, you know, i got these ideas. And I want, it's like, it's as, as if I had to bring more to the table than just be lashed through and go out and wrestle. So I'd say things to him like I'd say, um, hey, Jeff, uh, maybe I can do some T-shirt designs for the company or something. You know, I, I've got all these different ideas, and I've put together these artwork packets and give it to the company. And they would pay lip service to it, and they put it over and everything, and but it didn't make a difference. And they really didn't hire me much, and they didn't use me much. And most of the time I was driving up there week in and week out, and they really weren't doing anything with me. But I wasn't pushing it either. You know, it's not like I was pulling them to the side and talking to them in depth. I just kind of hoped that I would show up and that my reputation and my work history would speak for itself and I'd be given an opportunity. 
And I was just one of those kind of people, man, when that didn't happen and when people didn't want to give me a shot, I, I, I never could go in there hat in hand and feel like I'm pegging for a job. That just I was, wasn't my makeup, you know. And so I don't do well in that type of environment when I feel like I'm put in that position. And I kind of gave up on TNA because of that. Um, and really, I probably should have pushed it a little bit harder if I wanted to be a part of that group. Um, then I came home and I did some other independence and things like that. And during all this time, I'm starting to lose sort of my passion for the business, which is never a good thing in the wrestling business. We all experience burnout in it. And it was getting to me a little bit. And then I had some injuries and I was having a lot of difficulty with my back. I'd had a compression fracture in my back, two herniated discs, a ruptured disc. I'd had about 34 concussions at that point, the majority of which I got while I was up in HWA. This was before concussion protocol. So I got one really, really bad uh, concussion up there in HWA. And I didn't take any time off. And it was like every time I got in the ring, I was getting my bell rung. So I was so injured, man, and I didn't feel like working out, and I was burned out, and I just kept gaining weight. That made my back hurt even worse. And I and I had this Cajun weight title that I carried around with me, right? And I was the Cajun weight champion of the world. It became sort of a gimmick for me. I would carry around the independence. And if you wanted me to work as a as a babyface, great. I'm the Cajun weight champion. You can get your picture taken with me in intermission, and that's part of the gimmick, right? And then if I'm the heel, then I'd pull the Ric Flair gimmick. I'd go in there, I'd put your baby face over. They'd have the Cajun weight title, and I'd come out and grab the microphone, and I would, I would strip them of the Cajun weight title on the grounds that they're not Cajun, so they're not qualified to be the champion, and I would leave with the belt anyway. And that was kind of this running <laughs> gimmick that I was doing. It was just cheesy and silly. And I was, I was getting so disheartened by the business that I would l- literally put the belt on so loose that I could stick my water bottle in it like it was a cup holder. I'd just walk around like that, you know. It was everything that I hated about bitter wrestlers that I felt myself becoming. And I thought, you know what, if I've got such little passion for the business as this, then maybe it's time to kind of hang it up. And I was never one of those kind of guys that was going to retire and then come back six months later. And I wasn't going to retire and then come back ten months later. I wasn't going to retire and then take just – two years off, and then reinvent myself and step back to the ropes. So I took that sort of thing very seriously, and I was doing some independent shows throughout Alabama, and I did one at a local high school, and booked on a show there with me was uh, Bull Buchanan, was Barry, and we were booked to get, we were, we were going to wrestle each other that night in the main event. And I thought, you know what, man, me and Barry can have a great match. He's a wonderful guy and a phenomenal worker. We'll go out there, we'll tear the house down, and if I want to go out, if I want to retire, this is a good, as good of a one as any to go out on. So I walk up to him, I said, hey, man, how you doing tonight, Barry? And, and, you know, he and I had traveled together for some other independent stuff that we had done for a while there with some, for, for a promoter, and so we had spent some time together, even though our, our careers didn't really cross paths in WWE. We had really gotten to know each other, because he doesn't live too far from me there in Georgia, just right across the Georgia line. I walked up to him, and I said, man, you know what? Tonight's going to be my last match. He goes, yeah, okay, man. I go, no, no, I'm getting to wrestle you, man, and I know we could have a great match, so I'm going to retire after tonight. He goes, okay, brother, whatever you say, you know. And he thinks I'm kidding, and he, he hugs me and the whole deal, and we have this match. We have a good match. I don't make a big deal out of it. I don't cut a promo. Uh, I don't leave the crowd wanting more. I have a match, finish the match, step out of the ring, and never step back in another wrestling ring. 
So I walked out that night, retired from the wrestling business, and meant it. I never did another autograph signing. I did a couple of interviews and things like that here and there, but I never did the proverbial shoot interview. I never had these long documentaries or sit-downs or anything like that. I respected the business too much for that. It had given me a lot, and I appreciated everything that it had given me. And when I left the business, I left it with no intention of ever going back. The closest I have ever come to returning to the wrestling business was last summer, I was working out in the gym, and there's some local guys here that have an independent wrestling group, and they try to really promote professional wrestling in the state of Alabama, and they have kind of a formal uh, Alabama Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, and they decided that they were going to book Arn Anderson and put him in their Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And they booked Arn here in Oxford, Alabama, which is where I grew up, at the local Civic Center. And Arn was going to come in that day and put on a wrestling clinic and workshop for local workers to help them and help train them up as part of the whole weekend's festivities before he did the show that night. I had not even been to another wrestling show since I had retired. And uh, I asked the guys, I said, when they told me about the show, they said, hey, we're going to have Arn in town. I said, do you guys mind if I come down to the workshop and just see Arn? I hadn't seen him since WCW. They said, of course not, man. We would love to have you, man. You come anytime you want to come. So I went down there during the day. I didn't want to go that night because I know the wrestling business, and I was afraid that if people saw me at the wrestling show that fans would start talking or take photos or put it on social media and people would just assume I'm back in the wrestling business or start some kind of a buzz like that. And Also, I just didn't want to make it about me. I just wanted to go down and see Arn. And, uh, and so when I went, actually the person I saw first before I saw Arn was Bull Buchanan. He was there that day because his son is trying to start in the wrestling business. His son, by the way, is just a big kid, very, very talented kid, very athletic kid. He, he really looks very promising. I, I think as young as he was, he was still in high school when I saw him, and he already looked great. He already stood out. So he wanted his son to be able to learn a little bit from Arn while Arn was there that day. So he's there with his son. So I see Barry, and he goes, Lash, man, what are you doing here? And he hugs me. He goes, man, I haven't seen you in, what, 10 years? I go, yeah, about that. And he goes, man, what have you been doing? Where have you been? I said, well, I retired that night. I told you I was retiring. And he goes, man, I thought you were ribbing me. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's a heck of a rib, right? That's, that's a long con there, the really long con. You talk about selling it. But uh, I said, no, I wouldn't rib it, man. I hadn't been back in the wrestling business or a wrestling ring since then. So he and I sat down, and we visited a little bit, and Arn came. And I went up to Arn, and I just wanted to thank him for all of his kindness, for all of his generosity, for the time that he spent sort of mentoring me when I was in WCW, for just being good and giving an opportunity to a young kid that didn't know anything about the wrestling business. And that's really what I take away from all those crops of all those guys, man. Whether you're talking about the Armstrongs, or you're talking about Dr. Tom Pritchard, or you're talking about Dusty Rhodes, or you're talking about Ric Flair, or any of those guys, man, Bobby Eaton, Jim Cornette, all these guys, man, were so good to me, JR, all these guys, man, that I grew up watching and idolizing and being around. They took a young kid that had never been around the wrestling business or known anything about the wrestling business, and they welcomed me in. And they were as respectful to me as I ever was to them. 
and they freely shared their knowledge and their abilities and their talents and their hearts and their lives with me, and they welcomed me in and they made me part of the family. And because of that, whether I'm in the wrestling business or not, I'll always feel like one of the boys. That is awesome. I, I absolutely love that. And as we start to wind it down, as we hit the uh, the exit button, if you will, I want to yeah. just kind of mention a few things, or have, maybe have you mentioned really? Like, there's I always like to say like a YouTube playlist or like a favorite matches, favorite opponent thing, where somebody could say, "Oh, Lash Lou, like wh- what would you watch?" Or you know, if I'm going on YouTube, what matches? So, do you have some favorite matches or some favorite opponents you can kind of think of, just for even if even it could be for me or for just for the fans? It's like, hey, you should watch these matches. They, they're these are some of my favorites. Are you talking about my matches myself that I wrestled yeah. in? Yeah, for the matches I wrestled in, man. Um, the ones that stand out for me were, as far as first, I'll say specific matches, and that's when I wrestled Billy Kidman, which was my Nitro debut. Mm-hmm. I really felt like that was a great match and that was the one that made me um when they booked me for that match wcw thought that they're just booking a kid from the power plant that could go out there and put billy over uh kidman to his credit knew what i was capable of doing and he also respected me and and how hard i worked to make matches good and to get matches over and because of that he gave me a good match we went out there and we worked well together we had great chemistry and now suddenly instead of just having some kid from the power plant that was going out and putting over the cruiserweight champion you had somebody that was coming out that was a character you had lash larue so it was sort of the birth of lash larue on that type of you know monday nitro scale and that was the career changer for me that's what shot me suddenly took me from just being this wannabe wrestler that kind of got booked a little bit to being one of the boys and being on the road and being accepted and and being embraced by the fans so that was always a big one to me another one that's a big one for me is my first pay-per-view which was disco you mentioned it earlier disco inferno and me halloween havoc i guess that was either 98 or 99 1999 yep yep in las vegas I thought we had a great match, and um, and it was just exciting, and that was my first opportunity at a big stage, on a big stage. And then any match with me against Chavo, and there were several of those, always felt like we worked really well together and had great chemistry, and any match with me against Ray Mysterio. Ray and I always had this way of just making up stuff when we went out there. We would do moves that aren't really moves. They were just this uh, combination of different uh, transitions that we would put together that would lead to the next, you know, a logical step in the match. And it just worked. And it would be unique, it would be different, and it would stand out. And it was stuff that nobody else was doing. And so I was always proud of those sorts of things. Man, more than anything, though, every single night that I went out, I just treated every single match as if it was a gift. It was an opportunity to go out and get the other guy over, get the match over, and just live a dream. Such great uh, just memories of WCW and when you're there at that time in WCW. But do you have any regrets in the business? No, uh, I always constantly worry that I never fulfill my potential completely. You know, and, and so that regret is not something. It's not a big mistake that I feel like I've made. It's not a missed opportunity that I feel like I've made. I live my entire life, and I'm not just talking about wrestling in general. I live my entire life afraid that I'm not going to fulfill 
my full potential as a human being. And I look back in WCW and I always wonder, I feel like I did all that I could possibly do at the time that I knew to do, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. you know, and we always wish that we could go back and do a little bit more than what we did. And I'm getting that now and understanding that in a different way than I've ever understood it at any time in my life. You know, it's strange. Uh, in a lot of ways, I'm more prepared now, I think, to go out and have a great wrestling career than I was when I was 21. When I was 21, I was naive. I didn't understand life. I couldn't cut a tremendous promo yet because I was good at throwing gimmicks together, but I did not have enough life experience yet to really tell a great story of the ups and downs and, and really tug at the heartstrings and make people want to see me wrestle. You know, now I could do that. Um, I care about the little things far more than I ever did before. Uh, the trajectory of my life has changed so much just in the last two or three years that it amazes me now, and it makes me want to look at what life can be going forward. I hit When I hit 40, I just turned 44, as a matter of fact, this past uh, Sunday, which is funny because people always think of me as being far older than I am. You know, I came in with a crop of guys that were a good bit older than me, and so I always kind of got pigeonholed into that genre, and people don't realize that I'm still around the same age as, say, you know, uh, Hurricane Helms or, or even uh, A.J. Styles or um, John Cena, you know. I'm really not too old for the business. I've just been out of it for a while. And I hit 40, man. When I hit 40, I was 315 pounds. I had about a 44-inch waist. I was miserable. I didn't have a lot of professional prospects in my life. And I said, you know what? So many people, especially people that accomplished a lot early in life, they get middle age and they start thinking the best years are behind them. And they start thinking it's never going to be as good as it once was. And forget that. If, if I'm given even a modicum of what we have come to acknowledge is sort of the average lifespan of human beings on this earth, I'm only halfway through this mug. And if that's what I was able to accomplish in the first 40 years of my life, what can I accomplish in the next 40 years of my life? And I started every day trying to do different things to change things for the better. What do I have control over today? And then I started pulling the weight off of myself. I started getting back in shape. I'm in better shape now than I was when I wrestled. I'm leaner now than I was when I was on television. I have abs now. I never had abs when I was wrestling. You know, I'm 222 pounds. I have about a 32-inch waist. I came down from 315 pounds. I lost 100 pounds before I started gaining back a little bit of muscle. You know, my, my artwork is really kicking on all cylinders. My ministry with church and with an uh, extended uh, care facility and assisted living facility where I work, and I'm the chaplain there as well, man, those people love me and support me, and I love them and support them. I feel like I'm making a difference in people's lives. I feel so uniquely satisfied on a professional level because I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Physically, I've never been in better shape. Spiritually, I've never been at a better point in my life. Mentally, I feel like I've pulled it all together, and I've got a good head on my shoulders and a good outlook on what life can be. And, man, I'm excited to see what's to come beyond where we are now, you know. And God's just been good to me. He has blessed me with this wonderful life and this wonderful story that I can tell people and this journey that I've been on. And, man, I'm not even halfway through it. And 
I feel better now than I felt when I was in my 20s, physically, mentally, and spiritually. I could go out there and have a 60-minute match and feel great about it and have this wonderful mentality about it now of just knowing with confidence that I can pull that sort of thing off. And that actually, believe it or not, helps me stay out of the business because I don't sit back with regrets wondering, did I really accomplish everything I could possibly accomplish? I think I accomplished everything in a very short amount of time you could expect anybody to accomplish on that level and at that stage. And, you know, life just took me in a different direction. Where it's going to go next, who knows? Think about it, though. You're so young in WCW and kind of looking back at, like, your legacy and stuff. It's like, wow, you were, you know, maybe in the business for a short period of time, but insanely impressive, like, being that young, getting through the power plant, getting on WCW TV, when, at that point, wrestling's at its hottest, so it's got to be harder because there's probably more people seeing money and, and fame and how popular wrestling is, so more people are gravitating to it, so it's a hard time to get into the business. So, I mean, it's a pretty damn good uh, career, and obviously being on WWTV for a few years, in front of millions upon millions of viewers, being a tag champion, being an uncrowned cruiserweight champion, pretty damn good run, I must say. Well, it's very kind of you to say that, man. And that one thing I always uh, – admit and appreciate now is when fans remember me, man, I just feel blessed that they remember me. You know, uh, if, if I was able to make enough of an impact that I'm not just a footnote in wrestling and people go, now, who is that? That name kind of sounds familiar. Now, people, people are aware, you know. That it's funny. I always say it this way. When I do these live events that I do with caricatures and things now, it's, sometimes I'll get booked strictly because people know that I'm Lash LaRue and they think that it's really cool to have Lash LaRue at their live event doing caricatures for them. And sometimes I'll get booked just because they love the artwork and they love caricatures and they don't know me from Adam. And there's never much in between. But if somebody's a wrestling fan, then they generally know who Lash LaRue was. And that's pretty cool. You know, that's pretty cool. And it's great to be able to tell the stories now because, uh, you know, I'm not broken down like I was. I went through my 30s, John, if I'm completely honest, man. I went through my 30s kind of broken down, very beat up physically. And one of the things that played with my mind was people would stop me, and they would say, didn't you used to be Lash LaRue? Because they kind of recognized me, but I was 316 pounds and looked like a shadow of what I once was. I looked like the guy that had retired after a 20-year career. And I got to thinking, you know, I don't want to look like I used to be Lash LaRue. I want to look like I am Lash LaRue. And that's the way people approach me now. And I don't look like my worst years are behind me. You know, um, people see me now and they say, aren't you Lash LaRue? Because they know that I look like physically I could go if they booked me on a match tomorrow night. And that feels really good. I know you're very private and you don't do social media and stuff like that, but if people wanted to get the characters and the awesome artwork that you have in the drawings, like how do they book you? How do they get in touch with you? Is it all local guys that know you? How could somebody kind of reach out to you, or is that something you'd like to keep private? No, I don't mind it at all. Uh, usually the way that I filter it through now is um, – it's funny because you can go back to old WCW magazines when I used to do the old lashing out cartoons. Oh, yeah. Yep. Magazines, and I did that feature. And I would include, every time I signed a cartoon, my email address. And my email address has not changed, believe it or not. You know, my, my, even though I don't <laughs> have social media, my email address is still lashwcw at aol.com. How is that for old school? 
Wow, AOL, geez. Louise. Yeah, and so that still, that still, and, and to prove that I'm not a bitter person, I have an AOL email address. How about that? No. Yeah. But, uh, Screw them. Theory, yeah. Uh, they can they can reach me that way. They can also see some of my work through a business that I have with with a couple of partners that are caricature artists as well. We are the Tune Heads, and they can go to the Tune Heads. That's T H E T O O N H E A D Z because Z is cooler, you know, .com. So the two heads with a Z, .com, and they can see some of my artwork on there, and they can book me for events through that if they're in the uh, Georgia area or the Alabama area or the Tennessee area. You know, um, we we have pretty standard rates as far as across the board when it comes to caricature artists. So that's an easy thing to get booked through. And they can also get uh, a commissioned caricature if they want they can email me again last wcw at com if they're interested in a commission caricature and you can be anywhere in the world to get one of those from me and what's cool about that is we have digitized so much when it comes to artwork now that i have literally taken orders before where somebody can email me and inquire about a caricature i can say yeah i can do that they'll send me reference photos I'll draw the caricature based off the reference photos. They pay half the money up front through PayPal or Venmo or some kind of an online app like that. I'll do the caricature, and when I finish the caricature, I'll send them a low-resolution version proving that I've done the work, and they pay the, the balance. And once the balance is paid, I can send it to the local printing, which is generally like a Walmart or someplace, and they can get it printed as large as 20 by 30, 16 by 20 poster, 11 by 14 poster, full color, Digital like that. I could also send them a digital file that they could use uh, online, and um, it, it's a it's a really really cool thing to be able to do it that way. And it's you know somebody doesn't have to be local in order to get one of those. Nice, good stuff. Uh, absolutely love it. And I know you did a great drawing for me. I'll put it on social media. Awesome caricature. I absolutely loved it. So oh, I know your you. work. Is, yeah, I know your work is excellent. I know you sent some other uh, samples as well, which is really, really good too. But that was uh, that was great, and and a quick turnaround too. I was loving that. Well, the version that I did for you, and the reason why that was such a quick turnaround is that is actually I have two different methods of doing caricatures when I do them for an event, and I do a lot of corporate events. I do a lot of Christmas parties. I do weddings and receptions and things like that. And we do some traditional, which is obviously me just setting up my easel and I draw straight on the paper. And we knock those out. I could do about 12 in an hour. So it comes out to about, you know, six minutes a piece or something like that, you know, for each one of those caricatures that I do in pencil. And then sometimes we get booked to do digital caricatures. And what I did for you is a black and white digital caricature. And I did that on my iPad. And that's the quick version. If somebody orders a commission that is a poster, I spent hours on that. You saw the deluxe version of those full mm-hmm. cool colors. Yep. Yep. And then the one that I sent you is similar to an example of what I would do at a live event, and I knocked those out in about six or eight minutes. Nice. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Lash, I appreciate all the time. You gave me time. I know it's a very rare thing, not only to get you for an interview, but to get you for this long. So uh, I am honored, and it's awesome, and uh, definitely will be in touch for sure. Hey, thank you so much, John. I appreciate the interest, man. I appreciate you sort of keeping the the uh, career alive there, brother. And uh, it means a lot to me to get an opportunity to sit down and kind of stroll down memory lane. You know, throw a little green green over my left shoulder, a little bit over my right shoulder, and let's say le bon temps roule and let the good times roll.
Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.